You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 718. It's kind of fun to do the impossible. Walt Disney. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films. From predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them, the odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur Method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Enjoy this episode with guest host, Scott McMahon. we got to finish the uh, interview I had with Randall uh, Johnson from um, randalljohnson.com. Look it up on the website. Get the link. <laughs> but anyway, we're part two because we ended... Because this is how bad I am. This is the never-ending conversation, by the way. Yeah, I hope it goes on and on. I hope there's like seven <laughs> parts to it. But the thing is, uh, the, the thing is, I this is how bad I am. If I was a real journalist, which I'm not, which you know explains a lot. Yes. Is uh, I would have I would have I would have taken the time to do a little bit more research because on reading your website and everything, because everything you were sharing with me was on your website, and but and when you were telling me, I was I was it was almost as if I was a new person though, because I was like, oh really. I didn't know you worked with all those, you know, uh, you know, Henry Rollins and Stan Ridgeway, yeah. and you know, so that was exciting for me. But it was kind of neat because, being stupid as I was, is like I was hearing for the first time. Even though I could have probably prepped myself better by reading thoroughly through your website, as opposed to just glancing a few of the items when I first went through the website. Well, you but, can just peel the uh, the layers away like an onion. Yeah. For, with me. So uh, each week uh, you'll find a little something new. <laughs> so, well, this, so what we did was last we left off, you were mentioning you went to UCLA for uh, oh, yeah. screenwriting. Oh, God, yeah. So, That's and right. then you had. Um, a, a college, you know, friend who's working in an agency saw you somewhere in the street or something like that, and um, you know, you bumped into I don't know the coffee shop, but anyhow, they got your script because there was a whole a breed of uh, new young agents that were looking for some cool stuff, and they really latched on to a slaughter alley, right? If I was correct, and from that, but we got sidetracked a little bit because you said you were doing a lot of work with the 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 exploding punk scene in the late seventies, yep. early eighties on the West Coast, so the California style, so which is huge. It's, early eighties, yeah. yeah. So. 
And you know, we're we're talking about all, uh, we were going on about Stan Ridgeway, Black Flag. We were talking about Minuteman mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and uh, the label that you created. So we kind of touch upon that, but I, I think it's still an interesting story. Mm-hmm. We can continue there. We, we were working our way on towards how you got dudes made or how, how it got picked up, like your first screenplay, right. and all that kind right. of stuff. Um, let's see. Gosh, well, backing up a bit. Um, yeah, I ran into my friend Howard, Howard Sanders, uh, who I'd gone to film school with, and how he had become an agent or was aspiring to be an agent at the William Morris Agency. And so when I ran into him, he was literally working in the mailroom at William Morris at the time, how, and sorry. and he said, you know, what happened to Slaughter Alley? Oh yeah. yeah. You know, how big? Like, give me perspective. Like, how big was William Morris? At that time, oh, it, Morris was huge. It okay. was one of the established, uh, you know, agencies that had been in show business forever. Um, it was so old, as a matter of fact, that I was. There was a lot of talk about William Morris at that time. That like, how interested were they really in the entertainment business? Because apparently, most of their financial holdings were in real estate. <laughs> Oh really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was it was kind of an interesting thing, um, but at that time, William Morris, um, uh, ICM, CAA were kind of like the big three. UTA hadn't really emerged yet. Right. Um, what was in, no. where was Endeavor at that point? Here? They really were informed? they were there. Um, I th- actually no, I take that back. I think Endeavor Ooh. started with um, after a bunch of guys that I had met at Morris and then later ICM split, uh, jumped ship and started Endeavor. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. And then it, Endeavor became Endeavor and yeah. ultimately came back and merged with Morris. Right. Okay. I mean, it just goes to show you what goes around comes around. You know that the the sharks eventually devour <laughs> one another. <laughs> they are. They are. It's an amazing machine, and how much they um, survive, and how they they find their paws and different things. Like mm-hmm. it's taken them a while to get involved with the interactive industry as well. So slowly. Yeah. But. Yeah. They're a little slow on the pickup, but uh, I mean, UTA is really, I think, hot on the interactive in the media. Uh, you know, new media, whatever you want to call it uh, right yeah. now, I think. But, um, yeah, th- I mean, you know, again, a game world, um, you know, and this whole Internet thing, uh, that that was just, that's like, you know, it was it was dull. It wasn't interesting to, yeah. to the established uh, industry at that time. Right. And, of course, now, you know, everything is migrating into that, and uh, so uh, that stuff is moving front and center a lot more, where it certainly has a lot more respect than it used to. Right. Um, you know, um, I would have meetings after I wrote Gun, and again, I'm jumping ahead here, but after I wrote Gun or was <laughs> writing Gun, I was still, you know, I would go around and have meetings with a production company or you know, um, a studio or something, and uh, this is what you've been doing lately. And I said, Well, I've been writing, you know, this game, this video game. Oh, yeah, I guess that's kind of an, yeah, you know, people are doing that, right? It was <laughs> like, like oh, it, hey, yeah, that's yeah, cool. it was just, it was, it was, it was something that didn't have any respect. Yeah, no, in I the business, it. and now you know, hello, right? Um, it's it's got you know, it's I mean, it's devouring the business in one sense. Oh you know, yeah, it's a know, total so, so uh, for sure. It's, hey, it's very different. Yeah, please drink, eat, 
Mm-hmm. I can always pause this. It's always good. <laughs> By the way, for those who might be listening, I'm having a very delicious pumpkin flavored, pumpkin chocolate flavored um, um, stout. Is it? Was it a stout or was it um, a? Um, um, yeah, it's a little. It's a little lighter than a stout. It's the. Um, it's all right. We'll we'll figure it out. When they come down, we'll get it. We'll yeah. get the we'll get the. I'm gonna get one after my yeah. uh, Stella here, and it's quite good. So, <laughs> um, you know, happy Halloween, everyone. Seriously, and today today was sort of the first day that got kind of cold. A little bit cold. Yeah, yeah. So. I went out. I went out running. It was 36 this morning when I got up. I noticed. Um, yeah, it's taking a while and, uh, for us to get yeah, there. But. Yeah, And I went out running today, and I was like, ooh, it's a little chilly. Here it comes. Here comes winter. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it sounds great. The skies are just, it wasn't a cloud in the sky. I know. We've the been lucky. leaves are on the changing and on the ground, and it's just, it's beautiful, man. It's been, yeah, real nice. I love so. it. I love it. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I know Mr. Surfer oh, no, over here. Good. I had Mr. A gr- South Seas you know, is I, like. <laughs> I actually had a great um, weekend surfing. Oh, did you? So yeah. I, no complaints yeah. there. Cool. So it's cool. all good. Oh, so anyway. Going back, yeah, we got your friends. Yeah, so so I ran into Howie Sanders, and um, it was like literally on the street in Beverly Hills somewhere. And he just said, "Dude, what what happened with Slaughter Alley?" And I said, "Well, the, the whole project fell through." I had to go back to the mail room, my mail room of, at the Academy of Motion Pictures, and uh, I was working there, and I said, nothing's happening with this script. And he said, well, give it to me, because he said, I'm in the mail room now at, at Morris, and um, I can get it to some young agents there who are really hungry, and it makes me look good as well. So um, he said, believe me, he said, <laughs> given the stuff that I'm reading there in the mail room, which is what every aspiring mm-hmm. uh, uh, agent has to do, he said, there's a lot of people far less talented than you that are making a lot of money. So he said, I think you could, you, you should, you, you could get represented here. So I did. I gave it to him, and sure enough, um, a couple days later, I got a call from, you know, um, uh, uh, a young agent over there. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I invited me over to, uh, to, to basically meet and... Um, I signed with them. Um, I met with actually a pair of agents there, um, Carol Yumkus and a guy named Rick Jaffa. Rick Jaffa is now a writer himself, and he and his wife, Amanda Silver, they wrote a wonderful movie called um, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Ah. And most recently, they wrote uh, the remake of the Planet, Planet of the Apes. Oh, or, wow. Or Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Okay, you know, yes. Um, the big hit this last summer. But... Rick was my agent initially. So um, were you considered you know, like a, a pocket client? I was considered a pocket client by a guy named Shelley Weil, who has since passed away, but um, at his very established agency. He, he wouldn't take me on as a regular client, but I was a pocket client based right. on Slaughter Alley. But he wouldn't take me on, as he said, because um, on the, on the merits of what he termed is uh, an exploitation. Oh, okay. Uh, movie. Okay. okay. <laughs> so that was a very different. I mean, Shelley was very, very old school. Um, so when I gave it to Howard, Howard was like, "This is an exploitation. This is just a great script. Right. You know, right let's right. go. Let's go." You know. And then he got it to Rick and Carol at, at Morris, and they were they were just starting out. And they, uh, I remember Rick. T- 
telling me he read it and he just, after he finished the last page, he threw it in the air and just was like, it felt like, yes, I can sell this or I can, right. you know, this is a, this is a really great writer. It's just one of those moments where it goes right. It, it's a template, you know, it's seared mm-hmm. into your, your memory where it's just like, wow, great. I'm so happy that somebody loves it that much. And so they signed me. And then they started sending me out on meetings right away. Slaughter Alley was still under option, so they couldn't go out and sell it, but they wanted to sell me. It was a great calling card that they could use right. to sell me as a talent. So were they able to like sell it as, hey, we got the, his projects in, in option or something like that? Yes. So you got to yes. meet with him. He's hot. Blah, right. Blah. Okay. Correct. Correct. Um, and so subsequently, I went out on you know a lot of different meetings uh, with companies. I remember meeting... Uh, uh, with Johnny Carson's company. He had a development person at that time. It is um, strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah very strange. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it was, it was just kind of interesting. You go out, and it, they're basically meet and greets. Hey, how are you doing? Read your script. Really like it. It's cool. What else you got? Uh, that kind of thing. Um, well, what did you have at the time? Well, it was interesting. I didn't really have... I had some vague notions and I went into a meeting at a company called the Vista, Vista Films, or Vista Organization. And I, after this was after a string of, of meetings with what you might call pod people. Okay, a little bit. And it's just they're the obligatory meeting where they're there just like, hey, oh, man. hey, look what we have here. Hey, good. We can put it on pause real quick. Sure. We're back live. Cool. We just got back. Um, just finished up our dinner. Delicious. Again, you know where we're at. Mars, Lake Oswego. Mars Irish Pub. Anyway, we were talking. And, yeah, and by the way, that uh, it's a porter. My pumpkin chocolate concoction. <laughs> Not a stout. It's a porter. It's a lighter, a little bit lighter. So quite, quite delicious. Cool. I got to get one after this beer. It's so, a meal in itself. <laughs> So the question was, um, we were talking about, now you got your, you're in with the agency, mm-hmm. and you're going on meetings. Yeah. And uh, let's talk about that, because yeah. that's one of the things that um, was exciting to see for a writer, or who, they do it for actors too. Like the mm-hmm. actors, if, if you, sometimes they want you to meet with like the director of one hour programming, uh, programming for Fox or right. whatever. You're not necessarily auditioning. They just sort of want to meet you depending on, you right. know, the agency and the same thing with writers and I'm not same sure how thing. it works with directors and stuff, but same maybe thing, same thing. You know, I mean, it's, mean it, it's, it's a lot easier now for directors because they can, they can have a reel either on a disc or they have a website and somebody can go and right, see their stuff right. right away. You know, back in those days, I mean, a director would have to leave a reel, <laughs> would have like a big fat. An actual three, film reel. Yeah. Or yeah, a big yeah. videotape. Or, right. Yeah. A big fat three quarter inch videotape or something. You know, it's like ridiculous. So when you went... What was your emotional... How, how are your emotions? That's one thing I never get like in, in interviews. is Because a lot of interviews interviewers just sort of skip over like, oh yeah, so I got this agent. Uh-huh. The agency's behind me. Now they start sending me out of meetings. But never stop and say, okay, can you recall sort of the emotions you had where like, I'm going to my first meeting. And they, they tell you... I'm sure they get like a call or they tell you... All right, you got to be here at three o'clock. You're going to meet with so and so at this production company. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. want to meet with you and talk to you about mm-hmm. this story or whatever. Exactly. I mean, so what goes on in somebody's emotions at that point? I, well, I, I I used to get really excited or or almost uh, anxious about 
you know, these meetings because like, why do they want to meet with me? You know, are, am I, what, what sh should I have stuff ready? What, right. what are they expecting? Do I have to pitch another story? Um, you know, and the agents would always say, no, 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 just, just chill out. They just want to meet you. They read the script. They just want to know if you have any other ideas. You know, it's just a, it's just a meeting. Yeah. You know, there's nothing. I used to attach a lot more import to the meeting than was really there. Um, <laughs> And I used to get, you know, at least initially very anxious about it. I remember just in particular, like the meeting with Johnny Carson's company, Terry, Terry something or other was his head of development. I used to, I ended up playing basketball with him at a later, a oh, really? later date. Yeah. But, um, uh, he was cool, and I. Uh, but I was very nervous about it at first because this was like one of my first professional meetings, and like you know, what do I say? What do I wear? What do I do? Right. Um, that whole thing. But you start doing enough of these, and it's and you get a little more relaxed and just be your, learn to be yourself. Right. And not um, you know, it's it's not a. It, it's always a little bit of a dog and pony show to a degree, but it's it's not. Um, uh, uh, it, 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 you shouldn't suffer from performance anxiety for something like that. They generally, if these people have been doing their job for a while, they know that writers aren't necessarily the most um, uh, polished uh, of presenters. Or? Yeah, uh, I think they're, they're, they're not. Yeah, the most uh, gregarious individuals. You know. Now, so, you know. Um, Ron Howard's partner, Brian Grazer. Yeah. I saw him in an interview on Iconoclast on um, IFC, I think mm -hmm. it was. or, mm -hmm. And that show is basically kind of combining two icons or moguls for different industries. Mm. And you, they follow him around, and it's like an hour show. But they were following him. So it was Brian Grazer and his friendship with um, Redstone, head of Viacom. Oh, you know? yeah. So summer, it was very... Summer, summer Redstone. Summer, yeah, yeah. Summer. So... But then we're interviewing uh, Grazer, and he was saying that about writers. Like he, he says, he wants he he has this, the way they dress. He goes, if they're not like disheveled and like look, they're just like right off the street. And they, they, he goes, he wants his writers to be the ones that are like socially awkward, that aren't dressed to the T, that are in like like they look like that's all they do is write. Um, and that's sort of maybe is a tongue in cheek sort of. Um, Perspective, That's but he, he was like he's he said he was suspicious of a writer that was dressed better than he was, you know. Well, and uh, <laughs> you know, then then he just lost out on a meeting with like Aaron Sorkin, you know, or somebody of right, that right. nature. Um, you know, come on, if you if you take a look historically. Photographs of writers um, from, let's say, the really uh, from the fifties, forties, fifties, early sixties. Um, you know, the, the Writers Guild has plenty of them <laughs> on file, and in the in the the Guild home headquarters, there um, you'll see a lot of pipes. <laughs> uh, but by and large, they're a debonair crowd. You know? right. I mean, Dashiell Hammett, who's one of the founders of the Writers Guild, really, uh, um, he was a very debonair gentleman. You know, I mean, dapper. These guys, these guys knew how to dress. Um, it's sort of a sad state of affairs, I think, what it's come to now, because we are really sort of a t-shirt nation. But that, mm -hmm. I think, that's more indicative of the, of the population in general than anything. But for a long time, you know, the the sort of the uniform was. Um, a trashy T-shirt uh, and a really worn 
baseball cap of some sort <laughs> with some obscure uh, product uh, label on it, um, you know, and and of course jeans and uh, and a pair of. Um, you know, some kind of a, you know, a, a tennis shoe of some sneakers, you know, of high tops or something like that. You know, or, you know, Frank Darabont was was fond of particular. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. High tops, I think, at one point, you know, <laughs> classics. Um, you know, so it's kind of come to that in a, in a sense. I, I I understand what Grazer is saying, but you know, you can't make a blanket statement. Like I know. That. It's just, it was just interesting you know, to hear. He's you know he's a server. I know. <laughs> I know. He's talking about that. He's also talking about how he got bunked on the head. And yeah. It's he like you're like oh so. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? I mean you know. I, it, but that but there is a certain. You know, it's 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 a certain look, it's a certain vibe, um, and you'll get um, sometimes you know, and they're usually clutching a lot of coffee, a coffee mug of some sort, you know, add to that. So they're <laughs> they're in line at the espresso bar, they're you know, in the you know, you see them in Starbucks everywhere, or any kind of coffee house. Um, they're you like know. it's a given. Like any coffee shop you see in Los Angeles, there's a, uh, a laptop with a uh, sure. screenwriting going. Sure, on. I mean it used to be in the old days. It used to be a note notepad. You know, okay. I mean, and I was one of them. I would go out because, um, you know, writing is a lonely business part of the time. Right. For, mo- for most of the time. And uh, writers rarely got out, especially if you were under pressure to get a script done or on a deadline of some sort. Um, you just didn't get out. So the only way to get out really was to uh, double up on function and business. And what was like, get to his coffee shop, get some coffee, and you get some work done. Uh, and then you might vicariously experience real life in the process. <laughs> you know, get out of that that those four those four enclosing walls. I don't know if um, it's you know. Yeah, I don't know if I've I've done it a few times just because out of sheer I had to. I was like under. I had time to kill. I was like, oh, I got to get some work done. And I noticed that I kind of shut myself off a little bit mm-hmm. when there's a lot of noise. Because if I don't know anybody, mm-hmm. it's okay. Just put the earplugs in and, you know, mm-hmm. you do your business. Mm-hmm. But when you take your moment to take a breath or step away from whatever you're working on, the writing, it gives me a chance to sort of preserve, you know, uh-huh. human nature. And you, uh-huh. and you yeah. never know what triggers that ima- uh, inspiration. Like, you just see this, this uh, somebody ordering, you know, a latte, but the way they order it is so bizarre. Sure. That you're like, oh, that that's, might be interesting. But I actually found most of my success writing for my for me is I go to the, the public libraries you mm-hmm. know it's just they have the Wi-Fi but mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I try to cut off the Wi-Fi because it's too easy to get yeah. distracted yeah. but for some reason for me the, the library is, was always a nice little getaway to get outside the the home stu- home sure. office and stuff. Well, libraries are great um, I, I never I never ventured to them to actually work. I would always go. I would be there to research, right? And I would always be on a uh, sort of a, on a mission, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And again, these are days uh, before the internet. I remember if I was on a, you know, a couple of projects, um, I became a lifetime member 
of the UCLA Alumni Association for the sole purpose that I would always have library privileges. Um, uh, <laughs> well, that makes sense. And so, yeah, um, I haven't used it now in, in a number of years, but the point was is that I used to, and again, the days before the internet, uh, if I was researching something in a historical uh, period or something, I would go to the graduate research library and just disappear. I mean, it would lead, I, I would cross-reference and go down this path and that path and that aisle and go to special collections and everything, and I loved it. I mean, it was fantastic. It was a really a, it was actually a physical investigation. Right. You know, you, know, you actually had to travel. You had to get in the elevator after you got to the card catalog and go upstairs or this or that or, you know, find different things. And it was it was always a little bit of an adventure. And then there would be interesting things you would encounter along the way on the shelves and down the aisles and all that stuff. So I always, always really enjoyed that. Now, you know, I mean, it's all at your fingertips. It's crazy. So you don't do yeah. that anymore. But I never worked in a library. I always liked the vibe of it, but I never worked in it. I, I preferred to go where um, uh, I could observe people coming and going a lot. Mm-hmm. So there's a place in, in, in L.A. called the Apple Pan. It's... Um, it's down on Pico Boulevard, just just east of Westwood Boulevard, a block, and it's a little horseshoe counter in an old bungalow that's been there since 1947, and it's family-owned, and they have refused to sell out, and so it's completely surrounded now by tall, modern buildings, <laughs> and, and here's this little 40s-style bungalow on the corner, and <laughs> it's still run exactly the same way it was uh, way back when, and the menu really hasn't changed. The prices have gone up, but basically they're making the same kind of uh, stuff on the menu. The hickory burger, hamburger, cheeseburger, tuna fish sandwich, ham sandwich. It's been on the, on the menu since 1947. Um, but I used to go there because I, I lived not too far from it, and it stayed open relatively late. It would stay open until midnight on, on weeknights and then 1 o'clock in the morning on, on the weekends. And I used to take a corner seat and go in there with a notebook, order a lot of coffee, and I would go in about an hour before closing and uh, get something to eat and drink a lot of coffee, make a lot of notes, and then go home and work through the night. But I used to see tons of people coming through there and a lot of celebrities. I mean, Mm -hmm. I saw everyone from, you know... Warren Beatty was with a beautiful woman there one night. Um, Gene Siskel. I, I met Gene Siskel actually right after the doors came out. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And he and Roger Ebert had interviewed, uh, had reviewed it on the show. And I happened to look up and I said, oh my God, there's Gene Siskel. How weird is that? So I went over to him and introduced myself. I said, I wrote the doors. You know, and he said, "Oh my gosh!" Well, he's a big music fan, or like pop icon fan, anyway. Oh, I didn't. I, I wasn't aware of that. But anyway, he was like, "Oh wow, that's really cool." So you know, and so we, but we ended up talking less about the Doors and more about the Apple Pan because he always oh. liked to go to it <laughs> whenever he was in town. And so it was like, well, "What's your favorite thing on the menu?" You know. Ah, there you go. And I sort of said, "Well, I like the hickory burger, and he liked the tuna fish sandwich." And you know, it's a tough call on that on that. <laughs> but but it was fun. You know, I mean, some of the Lakers used to be in there. I, I was I saw a lot. Um, just a lot of movie stars that right. would kind of come in, and, and it would be you know, it's sort of incognito. It would be very low key, but it was fun. It was fun to see, and then just lots of very interesting, weird people. And then, of course, the guys that have working there are old pros, so <laughs> they've been there forever. 
forever. And a couple of the waiters, you know, I mean, just holy cow, you know. <laughs> so there were lots of stories even about those guys, even. You know, now so that wonderful. you're... Now that you're up here in the north, in Portland, mm-hmm. um, do you find yourself going out and observing um, sort of human behavior up here or anything? Or well, it's it's really tempting too, and I, I relish it when I do get the chance. But I don't step out like I used to to go and work, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and that's basically because um, I got a family, mm-hmm. you know, now, and I want to be at home with them that night. Um, I don't write excuse me, right through the night like I used to. Mm -hmm. I used to work after getting all jacked up on apple (laughs) apple pan coffee. Um, You know, I would work until I would hear the paper delivered, you know, on my doorstep at at the driveway about, uh, you know, five, six in the morning or so. And then I'd hit the hay and sleep until noon or whatever and, uh, you know, get up and kind of start the day procrastinate the day away until 10 o'clock at night and start writing again. But, um, so I don't get out like I did. Um, and, uh, but when I do go out and I, you know, go to these, you know, fine drinking establishments like this and whatever, it's like, yeah, it brings back a lot of memories in terms of wanting to do that. And if you go to any, you know, uh, uh, coffee house now and at least in Portland geez you walk in and everybody's on the hovering over their screen you know you never see anyone with a notebook anymore making notes right. they're all hovering over their screens you know yeah and it's so it's very difficult to tell like who's who's real and who's not <laughs> <laughs> I used to do that I used to go in and see a lot of people making notes or writing or something like you know is he really is he real is he someone is he not yeah <laughs> Right. Is she really good, a good writer or not? You know, she's cute, but is she an actress? Is she a writer? Yeah. You know, you know that kind of thing. There's, I have friends that um, these girls would tell me in, 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 in L.A., it's like they would always meet these cute guys, these, the waiters or whatever they are. And then, sure enough, they're all actors, you know. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're like, and like as they got older and they got more professional, they're like, oh, geez, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny getting back to these, you know, these rounds of meetings that I was that my yes. new agents were sending me on. Um, you know, as a as a writer, you know, um, well, once I started getting paid as a writer, you just didn't get out that often. You know, I mean, it was you were <laughs> you were working, and I took it very seriously. So I was, you know, always working and anxious away over my stuff. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So to actually go out on a meeting was was like, hey, wow, I'm actually going out and mixing with society. Oh, the and sun. It, yeah, yeah, okay. oh, yeah there's all this stuff. <laughs> and invariably, um, you know, you go to these uh, production companies or studios or, uh, and meet with an executive there, and they would always have a beautiful young woman uh, working the front desk. Right, would right, arrive. right. They all did. And so, yeah, and because that, that was also... It's never stated, but it's implied. If you have a hot chick, you know, as you're working as your assistant or, uh, um, you know, receptionist, then you are um, 
uh, you too are a sexy individual. You know, <laughs> you know your cachet, your your relativity in, to importance in the business is you know your stock goes up. <laughs> right, right. So, um, but invariably, I would always meet these wonderful, and a lot of them were just really, really great. And I would always <laughs> would end up like you know these were the only women I would meet. So I would be unabashed about like asking them out. I made a fool out of myself a number of times. Oh, you know, interesting. But, but my roommate at the time used to kid me. He was like, oh, you had a meeting today? Did you ask anybody out? <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, I did. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. <laughs> so if any of us who uh, up-and-coming writers or find themselves in uh, opportunities for meetings, any um, words of wisdom you can give just them? Just be yourself. You know. No, oh. I mean in the dating part. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just be yourself. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it's different. It's different now. Yeah. You don't, you, you know, that's not your only outlet you know i mean you're on if you're on on the on the net you know you're going to find people via facebook via you know dating services e-harmony whatever you know there's, there's so many different ways now to get hooked up without ever leaving your your four walls you know right you know, that's that to me this was the lifeline this was the only way out you know you had to get out is actually have a meeting or go to the apple pan and have a cup of coffee and hope you sit a beautiful girl sits next to you but that <laughs> rarely happened rarely happened well it's funny you know? because i think uh, my actor friends would tell me it was very difficult they say it's difficult to date in la because it's sort of implied or understood that Everyone's here for themselves and their career, and it's yeah. self-absorbed. Oh yeah. So, to find time to, sh- to you know to share with somebody else is very very difficult, and uh, why it's difficult to date there. So I, I, it made sense well, to me for maybe the acting circles. I don't know, but well, everybody's everybody. It, you know, I think I think it applies across the boards. You know, everybody's there to become famous. You know, let's mm-hmm. face it, they're looking to 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 climb up. <laughs> and so you're you're thrown in into this into this sort of you know whatever you want to call it a pool of people who are social climbers um they, they could be shallow they can be sincere they can be uh, artists they truly want to make art but they don't know how to do it I mean there's everything's all you know kind of thrown together so it's really hard to read people at first they come across very sincere but you know sometimes they're not you know and, right and these are just some of the hard lessons of human behavior you just sort of go through in your 20s uh, when you're when you're trying to make it that uh, <laughs> just like oh god you know you get your heart broken a couple of times and I'm like oh have really lousy experiences, yeah. But it all becomes great, yeah. You know, g- goes into the uh, the into the, the the hard drive of your head to, for uh, fodder for later scripts. And, That's true, you know, and stuff. So you become a student of, of human behavior, if you will. However, if I had known what the Northwest holds, <laughs> you know, for one aspiring uh, writer. Um, Back then, I would have come up here a long time ago. Oh, interesting. You know, I think, yeah, yeah. Um, and, I mean, of course, I'm married now, but I've found that the the girls up here, you know, just in chatting and stuff, they're so much more friendly and open and sincere than they were in L.A. And, right. And I think it's just because, you know, Portland doesn't have the stigma of 
trying people coming there to be famous. Nobody comes to Portland to be famous. I don't That's think. True. I don't think unless maybe you're a musician or something and you want to become one of the Decemberists or something. <laughs> you know, but um, you know, it's a, it's you go to New York or you go to uh, or you go to uh, L.A. and that's where the yes. the real big business centers are. However, that is all changing, but um, it's very right. You know, but it's still, kind of a, yeah, the ones that need it that sort of need that yeah, just constant approval or, oh, or to yeah. make it. I mean, look, yeah. the, I mean, there always there are insecure people everywhere, and there's always you know everything is sort of relative that we're talking about as a certain archetype in a way. But but by and large, I just found people actually in the Northwest, all in all, being very much more open and sincere and... Uh, yeah, I just, agree. Just, I think you know, you're great, great to hang with. Yeah, know, there's a, fun. a definite sense of um, independent spirit or just pure mm-hmm. art mm-hmm. or, for you know, in their perspective is, yeah, oh, yeah. art for art's sake or just... Yeah. Just weird for weird sake. Oh, yeah, you know? I know, that's all man. it is. And you're like, okay, oh, I, I can roll with this. Oh, gosh. But the, I, yeah. I mean, back in those days, again, and also when I was simultaneous with all this, I was in heavily into the music scene though so I did have more of an outlet because I was going out a lot late at night to see punk bands play and yeah. go to these really shitty little clubs in the, <laughs> on the east side you know I mean a place called the Vex I remember um, um, the 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 on well there was the on club in Silver Lake there was Al's bar downtown. I mean, these were, and, and this was downtown. This was way downtown. I mean, this was no man's land right. in, in 81, 82, or whatever. And it was unbelievable. I mean, there's nothing, and it's all changed now, you know. I mean, the people, the what people was... live in there, but, but I would invariably see these very interesting art damaged women with moon tans that have a really heavy duty goth look or sometimes they would be tattooed it was almost pre-tattooed kind of thing Mm -hmm. but you know ruby red lipstick and pale white skin and then just like you know have this really bored art vibe about them that I just I, I fell for the oh love it's like hook that. line and sinker and that's yeah. commonplace up here now yeah yeah <laughs> except that they're not uh, as uh, jaundiced in, in or uh, you know um, um, much more open and friendly here <laughs> right, you know, right a little more tattooed and pierced even now than they were but in LA, definitely exploded but, that way yeah, for sure but anyway <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I no, digress it's, no it's, it's good to observe for me because I I want I want to I want to um, divert to that later uh-huh. but I want to get back to um, so you're going on these meetings mm-hmm. um, what was the sur- the first break that says we want to hire you or you know we're doing this with Slaughter Alley or you know what what was the first after all these meetings were like oh my god it's actually turning into something well it's a it's a good question because it is uh, Oregon related actually and I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you about it uh, tell you what the connection is um, I went to a meeting call, uh, at a company called uh, the Vista Organization and and uh, they were they were independent. They had a bunch of Canadian money, I think, is what it was. So they didn't have any ties with the studio or whatever. And uh, there was this guy, Miguel Tejada Flores, was the head of development there. And uh, he wanted to meet me. So I show up. And this is after I've had a number of meetings with pod people, you know, who, again, very friendly. Oh, yeah, really like your stuff, but it goes nowhere. Right, right. Right, you know, and you just, and you kind of exit these meetings and go, what was that about? What, you know, did he really 
like my stuff or is he just saying so or what you know what what is this yeah so i finally go in and, and invariably these meetings were you know in clean offices and really you know tasteful tastefully decorated furniture was surrounded you i i had a meeting with a uh, a young st- uh, aspiring, well, a young producer. He was the son of a studio head at oh. a certain studio. And I met at his bungalow um, on the west side. It was at Fox, actually. And I remember in our meeting there, he had a glass coffee table, okay, that was, had, and we were, there were these two couches that were perpendicular to each other around this, uh, on the corner of this glass coffee table. And on the table was this bowl of peanuts. And so as we were having our sit down and starting to chat, he reached in and like started, uh, grabbed a bunch of peanuts and started cracking them. Oh, shell peanuts. Yeah, shell peanuts. Yeah. Like they were, you know, like he was at a ball game and just letting the shells just drop on the thick shag carpet. Uh, (laughs) We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show beneath him not making any effort whatsoever to clean it up or 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 not make a mess he was deliberately just dropping it there and eating these peanuts as we were talking and i thought that was the strangest thing um and i've often thought about that it was an image that i'll never forget because it made me think is is he trying to show me how powerful he is by the fact that he's going to you don't you give know. a shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's just going to let the <laughs> let the help right. come in and pick right. it up afterwards, or was he just clueless? You know, yeah. was that the way he was raised? You know, right. you know. I don't know. <laughs> it was very, very odd. So I had all these weird meetings. So then I come to the Vista organization, come to meet Miguel Tadaflores, and I walk into this office. And it's just chaos. It's just packed with scripts and books, and there's shit everywhere. There's toys all <laughs> over the desk. And and I re- I remember see- my first view of him. He he was working. Um, he was at his computer, which was at that time was a big box, boxy uh, computer called a K Pro, which was made in San Diego. I think. Oh, okay. Or manufactured in, in San Diego. But he's at this K Pro computer and he looked up over the top of it and he had these <laughs> big black rimmed glasses and he said, Randy Johnson? And I said, Yes. And he said, um, Oh, Miguel Tata Flores, you know, a red slaughter alley. I fucking love it. Uh, what else you got? <laughs> and we just sit down and I just felt like, oh my gosh, you know, here's a nut, but he's a sincere nut and he's all about making movies and telling stories and uh, weird stuff. And it was just fun. We just clicked immediately. So he said, what else you got? And I just sort of threw out punk rockers in the middle of Wyoming. <laughs> and he says, I love it. Come back when you have a story. And I did. And I came back a couple weeks later with a little more story. And he said, I like that. Keep coming back. Did you have an outline or, nothing, or treatment or nothing. anything? I just was, I, it was, it, it, it was just the germ of a, of a, of a notion that ultimately became dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it was was that I had been going to so many punk rock shows and it, it had struck me um, as being a very tribal. Up, oh my god, you're here! What's up? <laughs> 
How did you know to come down? Hey, hey, do it, Frederick, man. Hey, Frederick, this Randall. is Randall. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Just wanted to visit, guys. No, no, no. What are you doing? I'm having. I'm upstairs with Adam, with my buddy. I told him I want you. to Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on, let me bring you down real quick. Hold on. All right, all right, we're back. Sorry, we got a little. Uh, I had no idea Frederick was here. I thought he left already. <laughs> but it sounds like there's going to be a big party here Saturday night for him. So he came down to say hi and uh, introduce me as friend. So there you go. He's, he's, he's going to do that in every subsequent interview you do. I think now. we should. He's just, he's just going to show up. He's like the you know? court gonna, jester. Yeah. <laughs> It's in the cards. But, you know, his personality is so big and and, uh, joyous. That's why when he gets here, like, everybody knows him. He's like Norm. Norm. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Totally. I get it. Get it. So we're, um, gosh, where we were. Well, I was at back, meanwhile, back at the guy. uh, At Vista. What? Yes. The guy said, I fucking love it. What else you got for me? And, uh, how did you come up with that anyway? We were just at the punk shows? We were just something Well, yeah, mind? that's what I was saying is that I've been going to all these punk shows, you know, and the whole thing had struck me, uh, sort of the, the, the hardcore scene in California at that time and was, was, very, was very tribal. Um, you know, you had your social distortion tribe, you had your, your black flag tribe, you had the dead Kennedys, and, uh, and, and each... Each sort of faction, each tribe had their. There were subtle differences in their in in, in how they looked. Right. <laughs> um, you know, the Orange County punks were a little different from the Hollywood punks. The the Valley, the uh, LA Valley punks were different from some of those guys. You know, you had a lot of different skinheads or spike heads, and you know um, the, the, that whole thing. But it, it it was just a it was a very interesting thing. And then plus you had the, the bands were. Um, um, almost embracing the kind of uh, a Western kind of quality. The, the, well, especially like Stan Ridgway. Right? Well, well, yeah. sure. You know, Stan. I mean, when he was he, he was still with Wall of Voodoo at the time, and Wall of Voodoo, although they were not punk, they were um, on the edge of that kind of uh, uh, art damaged new wave experimental right, right. sound stuff. And they, they had a medley of uh, of spaghetti western stuff. They used to I, I, remember, <laughs> I remember seeing them the first time. You know, not only did they cover Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire, which was their signature show piece, uh, they really deconstructed that, you know, and, the, and they had a big booming Mark Moreland, who was their guitarist, uh, had just this great twangy guitar Sound that evoked the the old old school uh, instrumentalists, you know, the guys that backed up Johnny Cash and those kind of guys back then. Uh, it was just a Western sound to it, you know. Mm-hmm. But they but they incorporated in their show. They had a medley of, of uh, spaghetti Western songs. So they, they I remember seeing them first time, and they played uh, "Hang 'Em High" and "The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly" and uh, some other thing too. And it was like, wow, this is freaking wild. I love this. It was just it was really great. So they were the Dead Can. Kennedys had covered like a rawhide right, uh, from the TV right. show, and uh, um, uh, the Vandals came out of uh, Long Beach. They had a, a thing called uh, Urban Struggle, which was all about uh, the the punkers at the Cuckoo's Nest in uh, in Orange County having a like a big. Epic battle with punkers from you know another plane. Yeah. It was all done like a like a cowboy kind of twang. Well, I do, yeah, so, I do recall the, so, the sound quite a bit. Yeah, because it was it was that um, the guitar itself. They used those sort of big semi hollow hollow body guitars, the big right um, right Gretz guitar, you know, the '50s style guitar, and sort of like has the artwork too. Sort of like you said, it was that rock and roll um, hot rod subculture that kind of 
bled over where it's, yeah, you know, it had that yeah. big, well, big twang distortion sound. You know, I mean, it, it, simultaneous with all this was like the blasters and this whole rockabilly revival, right. you know, thing. The, the alley cats were, not, not the alley cats, the stray cats were the um, the very commercial mm-hmm. sort of uh, tip of that uh, of that sort of phenomenon. But that was a, uh, and that and that was happening all at the same time. And there was some overlap with the punk stuff, with the blasters especially, but. And this is all, there was a band called the Plugs that were really great. Came out of East LA, and uh, and Los Lobos then, and and all those all those they, and X then in the center yes, of all X, that embraced right. all those things with the hardcore and and then you know X they're all they're all crackers you know they're I mean, they, they, they're all hillbillies you know they love right. they, they they love all that country twangy stuff from way back when yeah social distortion and, evolved and, into yeah, that absolutely with, mike ness is right. you know a huge country fan because they recognize that they you know that those guys they were the they were the outlaws of their day mm-hmm. you know and a lot of them as in the context of the time you know when they were recording for sun records or whatever they were they were they were breaking new ground you right know, this was it wasn't like the the necessary the, the 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 mainstream music. This was this right. was like a whole new sound, you know. So anyway, I'm going back to all of this, I just had seen like this sort of kind of new Western landscape in the punk scene, and and so. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, punk was primarily a, an urban or suburban you know phenomenon. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, gee. How funny would it be to take some of these hardcore punkers, you know, who are like, you know, all all full of aggression and 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 piss and vinegar, and throw them out into the re- realities of the West? And, you know, <laughs> so drop them right in the middle of Wyoming or Montana or something like that, and see what would happen. And so that was the germ of the of the idea. And then I kept coming back and urged on by Miguel, kept coming back every couple of weeks or so with a little bit more of a story, a little bit more of a story. So you're writing on spec at this time. I mean, Completely. There's, there's nothing, no agreement, Completely. nothing. He just said, nothing. I expressed he, he interest. Just, he just, he says, I like that. And and he knew he couldn't option Slaughter Alley at the time because it was under options right. and it was somewhere else. He liked my writing a lot and he liked this idea, this sort of, he thought I was onto something. So he just kept urging me on. And so finally, uh, there was another guy there, a guy named Hank Palmieri, who has subsequently passed away a surfer a great surfer grew up in Malibu hmm. really bright guy really brilliant guy and um, such a good one of the best people I ever met in the business and he was Miguel's partner at the time too and so between the two of them I just thought these guys are fantastic I so <laughs> totally want to be in business with them and it, they kept urging me back and finally uh, there and there was a writer strike looming this is 1985 and there was a writer strike looming and so there was a certain amount of uh, there was a ticking clock that we had to get this get something done you know before the strike kicked in because God knows who knew who, how long the strike was going to last. So finally, what they... Were you in the they, guild at the time? No, I wasn't, but that was the thing. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. In order, if they made a deal, I was going to have to get into the guild and it uh, was, you know, okay. this whole thing. So both, basically what happened was... I went in there one day, and Miguel says, "Okay, you got, we got enough. Let's make this. Let's make a deal. Let's make this happen." And so they uh, they made the deal. It was a rush, rush thing, and basically, I got some money, and they just said, "We can't communicate with you now." 
you know, because, because when, as soon as the strike okay. is going to kick in, but we want you to go ahead and start writing the script. So maybe after, wink, wink, after the strike is over with, we'll have a script, right? Got it. So the, scri- the strike was actually settled in a couple of weeks. It didn't last long at all, comparative to subsequent strikes. And um, so in the meantime, though, um, I went out on uh, an adventure of myself uh, out into the contemporary West because I hadn't been out there since I was a kid. So I went out to Arizona, Utah, um, Nevada, you know, I kind of did this kind of long sweeping tour, you know, and just wandering around. I went to, I was really into ghost towns. So I wanted to visit ghost towns and, and it was out when I, I remember this very clearly, I was driving on a, on a highway heading to West towards Ely, Nevada. And suddenly I got the whole very clear picture of what the movie was all about. Yeah, but it involved jettisoning a lot of the story I had already worked out <laughs> Is with that those the guys. Case? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I just like I knew how to do it. I suddenly saw it. I knew how to do it. So I, I got on a got in a phone booth somewhere and I called them and I remember getting Hank on the phone. And I said, Hank, I got it. I got it. I got the story. I finally, you know, and, and I know what it is. And I explained it to him. And he said, well, yeah, I, I, it sounds kind of good. But what about the other stuff? And I said, no, no, forget the other stuff. Forget it. Forget it. This is, this is it. I know how to do it. And he was really kind of nervous about it. But um, he said, okay, he gave me this approval to go ahead and do it. And so ultimately I came back from this trip and it was really eye-opening for me as well. It was really great. I went to all these different places that it was just evocative in so many ways that I came back, I wrote the first draft and uh, they loved it. And they had, they started sending it around and we got a director attached pretty early on. And, you know, it, Penelope Spheris uh, had read it and she was coming off of, um, well, she had done her claim to fame, of course, was the decline of Western civilization. Right. Uh, but she had only done the first one at that point. And she had done another, uh, several other sort of low-budget exploitation films, one for, like, Roger Corman and stuff, you know. And uh, so, But she was kind of like the punk rock queen. Right. And I remember Miguel telling me, he said, well, Penelope came in and she impressed the shit out of us and we're going to hire her to direct this movie. Um, and she said, he said she came into the meeting and said, basically, there are two people that can direct this movie, me and Alex Cox, um, who did Repo Man at that okay. time, which was the kind of like the other, you know, yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah. you know, and Alex had been a, uh, a teacher's aide at UCLA film school when I was there. Um, I knew we had a couple of people, friends in common a little bit, you know, and so I knew, knew him a bit or knew of him certainly. And, uh, anyway, so that was, that was it. They started, they, they, things started rolling very, very quickly from that point on. And then once dudes was in production, that led to the doors and other things. Okay. Let's, let's roll back here. So, okay. <clears throat> You are. What kind of? What was the your agent's perspective of you when they you told them like, hey, uh, these guys are interested in me developing the story. Do you? I mean, what? How? What is their reaction like? Okay, yeah, keep keep going. Or? Yeah, oh, sure, of course. You know, they don't want to. Knowing that you're wanna... not on like any sort of contract, you're just on spec. It's on at, at this at this point. Yeah, they were just saying okay. Mm-hmm. You know, go for it. Let them let you know if they're interested. Keep them, keep them on the line. Get the story done. You know, get a story out there that you that they're gonna that they're gonna like. 
they weren't real meddlesome at that point. They were just sort of taking a uh, a back seat. The one agent that I had, Carol, I didn't necessarily trust her in terms of of feedback. Is this a good idea or is this a bad idea? I see. You know, um, so I wouldn't test the waters with her. Rick was a different story. Rick had a better story since I felt they both could sell very well. Okay. Um, so uh, I didn't consult Carol in the sense of like, Carol, do you think this is a good idea? Should I do it? Uh, or, I mean, should I develop this story? Um, it wasn't like that at all. Um, I was just, I knew this was the story that I wanted to tell, and she was going to make the deal for me when, this, when the time was right. So there's a difference there. You know, a lot of people go to their agents and look at them almost as if they are a studio executive or a, the head of a production company and, and, and think that they might have some artistic taste. I think that's dangerous. <laughs> that's dangerous to a degree to trust your agent as being someone who really has taste. Oh, I gotcha. <laughs> their, yeah. their deal is to sell. You know, make mm-hmm. the sale. That's what they're about. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have taste. It means right. they can take a product once they see it, once it's done, and they can sell it. But it doesn't necessarily, they, uh, that doesn't mean that they can necessarily see it as it is forming, you know. Um, now, there are <clears throat> others who can and have that ability and have that sense of like, that's a very good idea. Go for it. I like, or I like how you're thinking, you know, um, uh, but that's not always the case. So, you what? know, just let that be a warning sometimes to, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're, yeah, if you got yourself representation. Sure. Now sure. what, um, you were just working still at the mailroom. I was, yeah, I was right? still, I was still in the mailroom. And then finally when that, when they, Pulled the trigger on on that. The I first got, was it the first paycheck that we were. Well, the, well, the first payment that you, were you able to take your trip, like take yeah. an extended leave for yeah. the mailroom yeah. to do yeah. your. Well, no, uh, no, that was it. This time it was it was enough. It was substantially more money than I got on the slaughter alley option and the, okay. and the stuff that I had. I, you know, I mean, at the time it was like, geez, I don't know. It was like twenty five thousand dollars, forty thousand dollars, something like that. That's pretty you know? good. Yeah. Psh- Shit, yeah. yeah. So, are you kidding? Jeez, man, it was more money than I'd ever seen. So, yeah. it was definitely enough for me to finally say, okay, goodbye to the mailroom, uh, and finally, it, right. and go for it. Um, and also, at that stage, I had to become a member of the Writers Guild. So, that's okay. just the way because Vista was a guild signatory, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. had to become a member. So, you have to drop fifteen hundred dollars initially to become a member, and then get on the health and, and pension plan, and whatever. But then that's it. Um, and then they take one percent of your your earnings, you know, on top of that. Uh, so suddenly I was in the guild, and it was you know this, it was a whole new it was a whole new world. You know, I was a professional. I was truly a professional writer at that point, and it was. Did you go to um, guild meetings or something just to meet yeah, other writers? Yeah, they, they, they had. Um, at this time, they had uh, they were having some what they called outreach meetings because they knew the strike was looming, and so they were um, uh, having very small gatherings. And uh, like certain m- guild members would open up their home to a couple dozen 
writers to, hmm. and they would come in and somebody from the guild would come there and talk about the latest contract negotiations and what was to be expected and, and inform us a bit of what was going on. Um, my roommate, my former roommate uh, at this time was uh, Gregory Wyden who uh, uh, wrote um, Highlander. Oh. and uh, uh, Just the first one? Well, that's all. Greg never has to work a day in his life that's again, true. you know, really, because his name's on everything else subsequent to that. So mm. he collects a paycheck for it. But he did other things, too. I mean, he wrote uh, Backdraft for Ron, oh, ha- wow. Ron Howard. And, um, and uh, ask him how uh, he was dressed when he met Grazer. No, I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Greg got into the guild uh, just a bit before I did, I think, um, and off the Highlander deal. And and so he and I were were basically sort of rookies. So, so we were going to a lot of these these outreach meetings together. And I remember this initial one. I was blown away because um, there were maybe a dozen people at this at this one meeting. And one of them was like Paul Mazursky, who was you know a well known writer director. You know at that time, former actor as well. And Julius Epstein was there, and this little right. this little guy who's you know about four feet tall and about eighty years old. He's one of the writers of Casablanca. Oh, geez, that's right. It sounds wow. familiar. <laughs> you know, and you just go, "Wow!" That's where I was like, suddenly, it's like, "Oh my God!" I'm, I'm these are these are like names, you know. That like, I mean, real pros. I mean, this this was like an amazing thing. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Now backing so, up real quick. So that was you, exciting. When you yeah. got in, when you first got the offer, like you realized it was happening. They're like, okay, let's make this happen. We're going to give you the initial payment. You're going to have to get in the guild. Like I'm right. assuming all this stuff happened very quickly in a few weeks or it, a month or it, something. No, it, le- it was like super fast. One it, was, day, it was within boom, boom, boom. a couple of uh, a week or so. So your emotions, like, did you did you get a chance to like go out with friends or anything, or girlfriend, and say, let's celebrate? Just have like a, just a little toast or anything that you did that you like any type of little ceremony. You said, whoa, this is cool. There was a group of us that came through the film school mm-hmm. or the theater arts department at UCLA um, at at the same time. Um, and actually, in retrospect, this that whole era, I've been told by other people from the theater side, the drama department, that uh, it is generally regarded as being an extraordinary period from the from the theater arts department. The, the UCLA theater arts department was included film and drama, so they were, okay. they were, they were sort of segregated, mm-hmm. if you will, but two different buildings but basically we were all under under the roof of theater arts right right but out of that time I mean there was Tim Robbins Daphne Zaniga Alex Cox uh, Greg Wyden um, I mean Dan Pine uh, Neil Jimenez I mean there were so many people that were going having huge success like I mean very early on and, and would later go on to you know having extraordinary careers yeah um, but in my particular circle, it was Greg and I were, had been roommates. Uh, we had a guy named Mike Petzold who was um, aspiring producer. His girlfriend uh, at the time uh, ended up becoming uh, hugely important in my career because she was um, 
development exec at Columbia when they had the doors. Hmm. And so I, you know, through her, uh, was able to get in and have a meeting about that. But that's a little bit further down the line. But Greg had grown up in, in Laguna Beach, and a good buddy of his, Don Knowlton, was also in the theater arts or in the in the drama department, so he knew a number of people there. Anyway, there was a circle of you know four or five of us um, that were all writers uh, and uh, and or producers, aspiring producers. That anytime anyone had any sort of success, we would go out and celebrate. And usually it was it was. You know, it wasn't anything like you're painting the town red. Right. But we would always Little gather. Cheers, yeah, we yeah. would. Yeah, we would gather. There was a place called Cafe Figaro, which was in West Hollywood. It was on uh, Robertson, right in right where it almost dead ends to uh, Santa, Little Santa Monica Boulevard. And it, it was George Sand. I remember this very well because there's I met Demi Demi Moore in the <laughs> bookstore there across the way after uh, uh, one time. But we would always convene at Cafe Figaro mm-hmm. and have drinks and dinner there, and it was like a real just sort of a working. Yeah, working man's place, you know. But they always had cute waitresses there, and it was just a place where you know lonely writers would go and <laughs> hope to score, you know. <laughs> you know, so that was uh, that was the kind of thing that we would do. It wasn't, um, you know. Um, I always had a sense that you know this stuff was fleeting, you know, and it was never going to be, uh, you know, you just. It, that there was always going to be challenges further ahead just right. to don't let it go like, wow, I've made it. And it's, you know, there's no turning back. Is it? No, it's not like that. Because even once you've sort of quote unquote arrived, <laughs> there's always stuff going on um, that you've, you know, you get racked with self-doubt. You, you write something that isn't received well. All these things that can sort of trip you up at one time or another. And it, you know, Hollywood in general is a place that just uh, one of the fuels that runs it is insecurity and fear of losing one's stature, of losing one's job, mm-hmm. you know, losing, <laughs> losing face, you know. And uh, so that, that informs a lot of decision making and a lot of, of you know, artistic decisions, uh, right. unfortunately, you know. Um, but <laughs> at that time, though, still, I was on cloud nine, man. I just freaking, I couldn't believe it. I was just thrilled. Uh, <laughs> and then later on, it was funny. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't that strike because it didn't last long enough. It was a strike in '88 that I started seeing um, because I was a strike captain. Um, the guild had asked me to be a guy that would have to call. Okay. Um, you know, here's the phone numbers of a dozen writers. So uh, we're going to uh, pick it. 20th Century Fox tomorrow. Got it. You got to call all these guys and tell them to be there and what right. time they're going to be there and this and that. And in the 88 strike, you know, you have we have these just these massive um, uh, pickets, mm-hmm. one studio at a time. So there would be hundreds of writers out picketing, you know, marching up to the end of the block and then back down, you know, up and down and back and act really angry, shake your signs, you know. <laughs> and 
so invariably, you know, you're, there are these two columns you're going, and you're passing guys walking in the opposite direction, you know, and you see their faces. So, you know, I even see guys that I'd always admired, uh, Harlan Ellison, um, uh, Richard Brooks, uh, you know, great writers and directors. And then I, <laughs> I see Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury had been a real inspiration for me ever since, uh, um, oh, God, it was like Are you talking about college or your high school? 12, this is going back to high school. Right, right. You know, where I was, like, even, like I started reading Ray Bradbury short stories when I was about 12 or 13 years old. And he, I did my high school term paper, English term paper on his work. And then he came down and spoke to, at a local college where I was, at, out of Maricosta, uh, where I was, um, and I went to see him at the time. And I was like, couldn't believe that was actually a living, breathing writer, like one of my idols right there, up there on stage. <laughs> I was sitting in the front row, and afterwards I went up and just told him I did my term paper on you and I, you know, in English this year. And he said, oh, great. Here's my card. You know, write me. <laughs> and I did. And I, I think I, he asked for a copy of it, of, of the report or whatever. And so I sent it to him and he sent back like a whole little package of, of stuff that he had autographed and it was personally printed stuff. And wow. it was just like, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. So cut two years later, I come to L.A., and just in my very first, you know, month at, at UCLA, and I went into, um, I knew where he lived. He wasn't too far from where we lived. That was one of the first things I, I wanted to see. It was like, where does a real writer live? You know? <laughs> and I found his address down in um, in, in um, uh, a certain part of West L.A. there. But it, but anyway, he was signing books one time at a bookstore in Westwood, and I went in. This is like, like I said, my first month there, and I went up, and um, I was just again, sort of in awe, and just sort of freaking out. And, I, and he said yes, and I said, I, 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 "Well, we've met before, and whatever." And I, yes, yes. I said I want to be a writer, and he said, "Well, do you write every day?" And I said, no. And he said, then you're not a writer. Next. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? And, and I was like, oh, I was so angry. And it was like, right, wow, right. I felt like I'd been you know, snubbed. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and it was really, really made me mad. Um, but he was right. You know, I had to get, get my ass in gear. Get um, cracking, huh? Get cracking. And so come the strike in 88, I'm out there on the picket line, and here comes Bradbury walking the <laughs> opposite way. You know? He's got this giant head. He does. He's got a huge head. <laughs> and I see him coming, and so I stopped, and I said, hey, Ray, and I, I said, you don't, you won't really remember me, but blah, blah, blah. I, um, and he goes, oh, you know, he was very friendly. And he said, and I said, so isn't this cool? Here we are on the strike line. We're writers. You know, we're peers. <laughs> you know? And, but I said, I still don't write every day. <laughs> so he sort of and laughed and moved on. <laughs> there you go. But that was, you know, but that was the kind of thing. It was, a, it was a thrill to just see some of these these people that I had grown up and I was, a, you know, in awe of, and and to be now sort of marching with them, to be part of that same organization, to be in the same arena was thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's cool. That's the stuff. Like you know, I like I said, I've heard a lot of interviews with. A different writers, and they sort of just kind of gloss over that as if it's like um, just the way the interviews go. It's they just sort of, oh, yes, I got my agent, and then I got this deal, and then we moved on, and I had to work on this story. 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But no one ever stopped and like I wanted to know all those little intricacies of no. just the personal emotion that people have that says, whoa, this is trippy. This is yeah. really crazy yeah. that I, I'm able to do this or I'm meeting somebody. And, and then you, because it, it reflects on your own sort of, I guess, self-worth. And you're like, how am I here? You know, yeah. or that, that kind of thing. And I think it's cool because it sounds, it makes all this experience human. What, uh, what I re- just recall now was after the dudes deal happened, um, my other roommate, um, Mike Petzold, um, he... At the, at the, I think guess so. It was at this, for the dudes, um, he and a very good friend of his, and had subs- subsequently become a friend of mine, a guy named wonderful guy named John Hart, um, who had gone to USC film school and was a cameraman. Um, and he, John, we had met John because John shot Greg Wyden's Project Two, which was this year's sixteen millimeter film. Okay. And John was just this, he was from upstate New York. He was just completely different from any of us that had right. come, come from California, you know. And well, just really, John was just tremendously fun. Uh, but he and Mike kidnapped me, was quote, unquote, <laughs> one, one night after this happened. And I remember this, they took me... They took me down to, we went out we, way, way east, uh, downtown, right over the L.A. River. It was like okay. the, it was like Fourth Street Bridge or something like that. It was right, right. Way, a neat old bridge, whatever. But there, at this point, this was no man's land. There was no one out there. It was about 2 or 3 in the morning. <laughs> and, they, um, and they pulled out a bottle of champagne, and they popped it, and they said, here's to to me <laughs> awesome um, man you know to say you know you're you know the beginning of a new career and that that staggered me that was a, that was a wonderful I choked up and I had tears running down my cheeks at that point because it was so uh, it's cool you know it was just it was just a wonderful gesture and those guys were you know like you know what can you say I mean I didn't there's not much to say, say. but but drinks it was, it was share, yeah yeah being the moment great. there was a there was a diner down there a little bastion of light <laughs> uh, in the in that no man's land of you know art lofts and stuff at that time it's called Gorky's and it stayed open I think it, it might have been twenty four seven you know and they took me we went there afterwards uh, after we did that and I remember eating they, they had like Russian food and stuff uh, <laughs> and I remember eating there after that um, they always had hot waitresses there too and, uh, it is L A no God all these art damaged you know and it that was yeah, that was a pretty neat night. That was that was great. So it was a, it was a very it, it was monumental for yeah. me. You know. Well, I really thank you for sharing because sure. I mean that's it's cool. It's just cool to hear. I mean, it's cool to know that yeah, we're all human and and it's real. Like the, I'm sure everyone has the those who are working professionally have these little moments where they feel like just like it's little fleeting moments of whoa, that feels good. 
but then, but you know, next day you got to get on and work. But yeah. well, I think it's a perfect place to stop the podcast. We've been talking for a while, and I think yeah. it's a great segue into the production of dudes, and then how you got <laughs> how you got door, how you got to a chance to write the doors and, and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. But That's I think this is fantastic awesome. because. Sure. We've covered in the first part sort of where you started, how you got into punk rock, and, and why that music scene was important to you, and now we're in the second phase. So. Yeah, well, I, let me just sign off a bit as we sign off. I mean, I got into punk rock by accident, really. I mean, because I was, I was writing a script that was a murder mystery. I think I mentioned this before, that was a murder mystery mm-hmm. set in the punk rock scene of L.A. And, uh, and it wasn't because I was really into punk rock. It's just that I thought it was a very exotic place to set a murder mystery Mm -hmm. okay and so i started attending all these shows as research you know for you know for the for the stuff and i had made friends with all these bands because i started contacting them i would read what you know the the cool bands what the cool bands were and there had been some that were associated with ucla film school as well so i started um I knew of them and whatever. So that's how I really got in, started getting into the music thing. The, 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 the script panned out. I could, I right. never finished it. I wrote right. like 25 pages of it or 30 pages of it, and then I put it away. But I, had I think all these, somebody got a hold you know, of it because I think actually I saw a TV show that had that premise. Oh, is that right? It was like, it was like Cagney and Lacey or something, some kind of oh, cop show funny. back then yeah. that it starts off at a punk show where people are a mosh dancing and, and there's a murder. And then, then the whole scene surrounds the whole punk rock scene of murder. So anyway, yeah. it made it to, I don't know, Murder, She Wrote. I'm just letting <laughs> you say, it, it's, I've seen that premise. Yeah. And I'm assuming that somebody found it. Yeah, maybe <laughs> so, maybe. But what you know, whatever the case was, I mean, that that's why... I began investigating a lot of this, you know, initially, and then the music, but, I mean, after the script panned out, I still had all these contacts with these bands, and I was kind of, I started really digging the music, and, yeah. and so that's, that started then leading to the notion of like, wow, maybe I could direct some music videos for these guys, because <laughs> they were all broke, they didn't have any kind of money, right, I right. didn't have any kind of money, so I said, maybe we could just do, cheat and do stuff on the complete fly here and see what happens and so that's you know and but that's another story as well because i was doing all these videos working with black flag henry rollins writing writing dudes the door and then starting the doors thing was it was all like happening it was a at once from about 84 to to 80 86 Mm -hmm. and even you know beyond that was a very highly busy time for me. Gosh, it's so crazy. I was skateboarding at that time Uh and obviously that the skateboarding culture bled into that. Sure. That was the music of the time and like all the older kids um, were you know into the punk scene and especially Southern California. Yeah. And uh, you know it was different because you're like I don't hear this on the radio. Like you see like this is such a, a subculture than what is being uh, out there on TV mm-hmm. and it was sort of like the first opportunity of like independence and skateboarding was definitely embedded with the um, the punk scene you know especially I think with the Z- Z-Town boys and you know that whole Long Beach scene and uh, Venice Beach scene and all embedded no doubt all embedded and yeah. the look the wear the attitude yeah. and then but th- that's how I you know obviously my upbringing with a lot, a lot of other Southern California kids that are in the scene 
probably saw it the same way. So sure. to know that you were making and, and interacting with those bands where I was just like a bystander of a kid just picking up whatever records I can at back then, Tower Records or, yeah. or what's it called? Licorice Pizza? Remember that? Yeah, Licorice sure. Store? Okay, anyway. <laughs> I think a lot of my first albums. Jeez, um, you know. Yeah. Where, like, and I, the like best thing is my I think my dad eventually saw some of the stuff I was going to punk shows and yeah. like I come back with like the, the pamphlets and stuff yeah I'm only like 12 13 at the time oh, so he's come he's looking at this going yeah. what the hell yeah. <laughs> he's looking he's like he was like really disturbed like what is going on with my son <laughs> I remember seeing a picture of um, the sex pistols in some it was like parade magazine mm. and they were like you know warning about the new horrible trend in you know rock and roll or whatever and Your the youth, sex right. pistols and they look like some just like Oh, a freak show thing. And I was so horrified. I thought, oh, no, rock and roll isn't coming to this. Because prior, th- this is, of course, back in like 77, that 70, right, right. 78, when I was just, I was 77 was my senior year in high school. And I hadn't come to, I wasn't going to go to L.A. until my junior year. I transferred up from a, from a community college. So I was still in kind of the fishbowl of Carlsbad, California. But, you know, I was listening to Yes and the movie right. Blues right. and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and you know, all the prog <laughs> the rock. The rock arena. Well, yeah, the prog rock, you know. Yeah, prog and rock, rock you, you know, rock, yeah. and the arena rock kind of stuff. And then this whole thing of the Sex Pistols, ooh, it just sounded, it just sounded wrong. You know? <laughs> and I was so intimidated and threatened by what they looked like and everything. And then, then I get up to L.A. and it was just, it all changed. It all right. changed. And all that stuff just still resonates with me hugely because it's it's a pro it's a, it represents an approach to creativity that is so resonant still today you know I mean it hmm. really it's it's about doing it yourself yeah it's yeah DIY man DIY I mean this was the original <laughs> DIY stuff we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show and, uh, but that's another story, and we'll pick that up next Well, time. sounds perfect. Well, I think we'll wrap it up for tonight. I, I was good. Felt good. We'll welcome our hey, Mars hey, together. We, <laughs> we got a little uh, so, cameo from oh. my friend Frederick and yeah, before man. he takes off. Oh, sure. I well, think he's like here every night before he takes off. <laughs> this is the launch pad, I think is what it is. You had just basically made the deals, had your, little, um, your buddies help you celebrate the sale of the dudes, and I wanted to get into... Uh, sort of the production of dudes and sort of lead our way into um, the doors. Okay. Um, but what I wanted to tell you was like about a month ago I was um, down in Portland and uh, I came across this like, you know, weird books. It was a comic book story thing, but it, they had like a bunch of array of like unusual books in there too. And they had a book that was like Punk in the Cinema or the American was it, Cinema. Was it um, uh, Floating World? Where you were at? It's like in fifth and uh, in Burnside. Yeah, it's like just yeah, it's just kind of just fifth and yeah, I think it's yeah, it's just right off uh, near. Um, it's near like uh, Chinatown. Just yeah, so that'd yeah. be fifth. Yeah, yeah. It's floating, floating world. world. Yeah, they have a lot of counterculture stuff there. Okay, so that's it's a great store. Um, and uh, Jason uh, Levi- Levithan? Leviathan. Leviathan. <laughs> Leviathan. <sounds laughs> yeah, cool. Leviathan. that was your last name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, he's a wonderful guy, very friendly, and that's his store, and I love that store. That's actually got me 
really excited a lot about comics and uh, oh, know, really? graphic novels. Yeah, and stuff. I kind of yeah. stumbled into because it was I was looking for mm-hmm. the twenty four hour Church of Elvis. Oh yeah. And it, I guess it used to be there, but now they've closed whatever used to be there. Now it's just this hole in the wall right. with this like weird display that has these buttons you t- ask you to push, and you can't hear anything. You can't hear anything. It's yeah. like the most yeah. weird sort of like useless. Um, yeah. Where? So, so where is that now? Exactly. I th- it's just on the other side of Burnside. So where it goes, Burnside. There's uh, Cooch. It's like yeah, it's fourth. It's it's right, oh, right on there. the edge of oh, okay. uh, Chinatown. I didn't, re- I didn't realize it was it was yeah. that. I, I thought it was further up north. It might have been, but hmm. they changed it, and that's where the oh. new location. So right down the in the corner of that is that uh, comic book uh, counter culture um, bookstore. Yeah. But I was in there and I saw this book. It was like punk um, history, punk in the cinema, or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And there it was, like halfway through, full full spread. It was like dudes had like a full spread of like your. Um, of the cover of the, the movie and like a little synopsis and it was really kind of cool. Get out of here, really? Yeah, I, 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 you didn't, I thought you might have known no, that. No, I didn't. Okay, so we had to get that for you for Christmas or oh, something. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just, oh, crap, I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. It was. Well, I mean, it's a pretty thick book. I mean, it goes through like a bunch huh. of stuff of like about punk um, reference or anything punk yeah. related in cinema and this, you know, and it's, it wasn't just like a little like picture yeah. and blurb. It was a full... I think it was a it was a full page picture one side and the other side was the write up. Mm. So anyway, I'll let you know it's out there. Oh wow, so. <laughs> thank you. Well, well, it's very interesting because uh, you know it was dudes was directed by Penelope Spheris who who really got on the map with uh, the decline of Western civilization, which was her her documentary on the L.A. punk scene. You know, really circa seventy eight, seventy nine, eighty. Um, you know, with X and fear and the germs. You know, she had a lot of a lot of footage of uh, uh, and interviews with Darby Crash, who would be dead. You know, in a very short amount of time. Um, when uh, and that was one of the compelling aspects of the of the whole movie. But um, so Penelope had a lot of street cred. You know, in terms of the punk scene. Right, you right. Know. Uh, Was this her first this, feature after the documentary? No, no. She had done, um, she had done actually two or three more films, narrative films, okay, um, okay. before Dudes. But she'd done them for Roger Corman. Um, <laughs> well, among, um, and one of them um, was called The Boys Next Door, which starred Charlie Sheen. And uh, a young Charlie guy, Sheen. Yeah, a very young Charlie Sheen. And, that, you know, at that point, Emilio Estevez, um, his brother, had all the street cred, or had all that was an est- sort of an established star, because, especially in the punk world, because he had been in... Um, Repo Man? In Repo Man. What well, year was that? Well, this was... Repo Man and Dudes came out basically the same year okay. or they were being filmed almost simultaneously so this was 85 wait 80 was it listed 80, dudes 80, 80, 86 actually yeah 86 87 right yeah dudes was actually um, shot mostly during 86 as I recall now and but it didn't get much of a release until 87 and okay. even then okay. it was barely and what's interesting too is that D, uh, uh, dudes has never come out on DVD and we're actually in the process of tracking it down right now and see if we can get it released on DVD. But what makes everything so difficult 
is that there's been a chain of bankruptcies <laughs> declared by uh, the whatever entity that that um, uh, acquired the rights or acquired the the actual fun- finished film because they dudes was made by the Vista organization and they made three or four films and then they were bought by someone and then that company folded and then they were bought and gobbled up by another corporate entity and so on and so on and so on and so it becomes very difficult to actually follow the the chain of title right for uh and and, you know and what's fascinating is is that this is relatively recent history I mean you know this is 19 you know this was a film that was released in 1987 right and yet there, there's serious doubt as to who owns it. <laughs> I can imagine, you know, which I mean, is, I mean, you know, go figure that. That shows you in in one level how fast these corporations, you know, buy buy production libraries, yeah, yeah, just and, come and go, and they Boom. come and go, and the rights to things are get uh, gets very confused. Right now, I think I remember um, when we saw the film on your, your writing class because mm. uh, one of your students was able to get a copy of it or you had a copy of it? No, I had a copy of it. Okay, yeah. so you yeah. basically... Yes. Yeah, basically what happened is I, fortunately, I'm glad I did, I, I purchased um, uh, a laser disc of it when it came oh, out okay. on laser disc. <laughs> so it was this big chrome platter, you know. <laughs> um, and when I moved up here, uh, actually a, uh, a friend of mine um, who was... Coincidentally, the engineer on on two of the records that I put out on my record label back in the eighties. What was um, the name of your record label again? Uh, Blue Yonder Sounds. And how long uh, did it last? Your record well, label? it it lasted about three years. <laughs> you know, That's a couple cool. of years, three years, something like that. You know, I mean, you can. <laughs> um, but Steve Sharp, uh, who engineered. The album by the Fibonacci's, which was the first release, and then the second one by a band called Slack, who were from Portland, Oregon. Well, Steve was originally from Portland, Oregon, and then he moved back to Portland, Oregon. When I moved up here, <laughs> I went to go see my friend Stan Ridgway, who mm-hmm. was performing uh, at Mississippi Studios. Uh, and with this, this is like in July. You know, we moved here in June of 2007, and then in July. Um, uh, Stan came through town and I went to go see him and while I was waiting in the beer line at Mississippi um, I hear hey Randy and I, <laughs> and I look over and I did not recognize him but it was Steve Sharp and he now shaves his head whereas back then he had big poofy 80s hair right <laughs> and and so and he Steve Sharp and I said oh my god Steve what are you doing here and so anyway long story short Steve has a media duplication company and a recording studio and everything here in town so he said uh, wow great sliders are oh here thank you it's a beautiful thing thank you Julesy I appreciate or whip thank you whip (laughs) right on Anything else for you guys? Uh, we're we're pretty good for now. Come yeah, back and man. see us when we need you. Yes. Thank, right. you. Thank you. Yeah, don't forget us. <laughs> um, so, Steve, I, I said, look, I've got a laser disc. Is there any way of getting something duplicated on You know, and so basically we got a, we got yeah. some, uh, we're able to get a DVD copy of Dudes 
pulled off of the laser disc, the digital copy there. But the quality isn't that great. You know, it's not like still looking at the original thing. And uh, it was shot by Bob Richardson, who's gone on to become, you know, Martin Scorsese's DP, and he was Oliver Stone's DP for for The Doors and many other Ooh. films. And he's an Academy Award winner. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. He shoots beautiful stuff and always has. And so, uh, um, you know, I, I don't think our little, you know, rip off DVD uh, was, you know, doing it justice. But, right, right. you know, it, it worked for my class. <laughs> that was cool. Mm-hmm. We'll take a little break while we eat. Sure. We'll come back. Let's see here. All right. Well, All right. let's talk about your the production of Dudes. Yeah. So, boom. You realize it's happening, right? Well, what happened was that I, 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 I wrote my, my first draft, which was really long. It was like 140 pages long or something like that. Wow. You know, and generally a screenplay should be coming in at tops, you know, 120 pages. Right. And even a little less than is, is better. But mine came in, it was, it was this epic, yeah. epic punk rock western. Crazy. <laughs> I shoot for about 50 pages. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And well, I say add action scene here. Uh, no. Right. right. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, but... In the case of dudes, then uh, they got a director involved. You know, um, I guess I got notes from Miguel Tejada Flores and Hank Palmieri, and producer Herb Jaffe at that at that stage. Um, in which I then, you know, we all knew we had to cut it down. So I worked on really hard and just really condensing it and getting rid of any anything that was fat. And then Penelope Spheris came aboard, and they were talking. It was the the script was making the rounds at the studios as well. They were trying to get a studio maybe further on board because so they were already in the midst of producing it, but they wanted a little bit more backing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That you know what happens sometimes is that an independent company uh, will say, "Okay, we've got this. Maybe we can get somebody to you know come on board more." And uh, I'll adjust. No, no. I just I moved it closer. You're good. To throw uh, to throw some more money at us or something, um, and I was told, you know, it, it got out to Columbia. Columbia was kind of interested in it, and actually Ridley Scott. I was told Ridley Scott had read it and was very interested, uh, or, or somewhat interested in it. Um, obviously, not enough to go to get behind it and make it, but. Because uh, you know, ultimately, it was interesting. He goes and makes Thelma and Louise. Not that oh, too, you know, right, too much right, later, right, but right. there were you know, there's some yeah, you know, kind true. of a little bit of similarities to it. Um, but anyhow, uh, they started taking meetings with potential directors for it, and uh, to quote Miguel, Penelope came in and met with them and. Uh, he said she impressed the shit out of us. You know? uh, and Penelope told me later, too, that she went in there and she said, look, there are only two people on the planet who can direct this, me and Alex Cox. And Alex Cox was already making uh, Repo Man at that stage. So, um, she said, it's got to be me. So 
I met her and she gave me some notes and then I did some refining. But the great thing about Penelope was that she just, she really loved the script. I mean, she really didn't want to change much at all. Not, not and really that's any. rare, yeah, isn't it? It's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. And, and quite, quite frankly, I mean, uh, Penelope was just, um, you know, she was just really wonderful. Uh, she was so welcoming and encouraged me to be on the set as much as possible. Um, she invited me at every stage of the process to be involved. For example, uh, once she came aboard and they started having casting sessions, she invited me to a casting session to come in. Now, yeah. did you have... There was three sort of main characters. Well, sort of, the three guys mm-hmm. and three dudes. But did you, when you were writing, have actors in mind no. when you were writing? Okay. not really. I, the only guy that I had in mind was the villain, and that was Lee Ving, played by Lee Ving. Um, the villain, was his name was Missoula, it was a nickname, and it was played by Lee Ving, but I wrote it with Lee Ving in mind because he was the lead singer of Fear, one of the bands that was featured in The Decline of Western Civilization, but I had seen Fear a couple of times, and I thought he was very, um, uh, very menacing, and he was a real kind of, there was a redneck uh, cracker kind of quality to this guy that was behind all the um, the the uh, intimidate intimidation. There was a real biker kind of Lee, Lee was very you know really provocative presence. So I had it really with him in mind. Um, but the other three guys, um, Biscuit and uh, you know Grant and Milo. Um, I didn't have anyone in particular okay. in mind. So, so when you saw that, when you're going through the casting session, yeah. then you're... Well, I had, I, I, I mean, I had in mind a character, right? you know, what I wanted. And, and it was interesting because we on that particular day that I was allowed to sit in, or she invited me to sit in, um, we saw Reed for the part. We saw Tim Robbins, uh, Kyle McLaughlin, and Kiefer Sutherland. And Michael DeBar, who was, uh, you know, sort of a 70s glam rocker, uh, <laughs> you know, into that, um, who wasn't quite, who wasn't right. And all those guys gave interesting readings, um, but the one I was most impressed with was uh, Kiefer. Right. Uh, but Penelope didn't go for him as much because she felt uh, he didn't have a sense of humor. And that was interesting to me because uh, I never felt that Grant had a sense of humor or should have had a sense of humor. It was the, 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 the movie's comedic quality came out of, out of situations where you have these punkers, you know, from yeah. the city, you know, floundering out in the Wild West, you know, the modern West. And that, that to me was a funny situation. And if there was any humor in the... It, it, it uh, expressed by either of the characters, it was out of biscuit. It was this big slobbery, yeah. uh, kind of a lovable, but you know, um, uh, a lummox, you know. Right. And uh, so, um, but we disagreed on that, and she she just didn't feel it was right. But ultimately, you know, it was played by John Cryer, the cast John Cryer, because he was coming off of the um, the John Hughes movies. Pretty in uh, Pink, was pretty, it? Uh, no, yeah, Pretty in Pink. Yeah, I think it was Pretty in Pink. He was Ducky. Yeah, Ducky. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. exactly. You know, so... And um, I don't think... Did, Kiefer hadn't 
made Stand By Me yet, had he? No, he had not. Okay, had so not. no one really so kind of knew. He was, he was a known quantity. Yeah. You know, uh, they knew about him because of his, you know, certainly the, the, Dad, the, yeah. the, his father, but, um, but they didn't, uh, he hadn't quite proven, he had bit parts, I think, yeah. you know, prior to that. Um, and uh, it was shortly after that that he started, you know, taking off. But yeah, because it was part, like you know. Stand By Me, then oh, Lost Boys. And, yeah. And that kind of cemented of that sort of very, you know, he was a good heavy. Yeah, yeah. well, he was good. And, you know, he had, he had suitable angst. And he, physically, he was um, menacing. He could be right. menacing. And that's what I wanted with, you know, with, with Grant. Somebody could go head-to-head with Lee Ving, you know, in, in a way. And then, you know, you would have the Blummocks of Biscuit, who was based on a... I took his name from a lead singer of a band called the Big Boys, who were uh, skate punks from Austin, Texas. And his Randy Biscuit Turner was their lead singer, <laughs> and he was awesome. He was awesome. <laughs> I only saw them once, but um, their records hold up really, really well. They were great. And then, um, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, I think. But um, the Big Boys were were rocking. And then ultimately, then she also cast Flea. From right. the Chili Peppers as um, Milo, the ill, ill-fated Milo, um, which was interesting because, uh, on one level, um, because uh, Flea had filled in as bass player for temporary bass fl- player for Fear. Oh, okay. Um, so, in a sense, backing up Lee Ving, and I thought it was always funny that you know, here was this. You know, the, in the movie context, yeah. uh, the the lead singer was killing his bass player. <laughs> now, that was real quick, because so, I don't think we're going to lose anything here yeah. by just giving the premise of the movie, right? It's like, no, I mean, so... It's basically, in a nutshell, it's about three New York punk rockers who get fed up with all the urban blight and living in the city and decide to uh, uh, drive cross-country to California. Yeah, because they want to go. They want to meet the Go Go's or somebody. It's, it's just, they want to get out of yeah, town. Yeah, yeah. they want to get away from New Jersey yeah. and they want to get away from you know Queens, whatever. It is. And what happens then is they're traveling across the country. Uh, they're camping out in Arizona, and then they get uh, attacked by this group of rednecks who are who are out um, uh, killing illegal aliens or whatever they, for kicks. Yeah. And We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So they find these guys and... Wrong place, uh, wrong time. Wrong place, wrong time. And uh, so one of them gets killed and the other two, the surviving two, Grant and Biscuit, um, vow to avenge their buddy and go on the trail of these killers um, when no one else will. Right, you know? right, and so it's a it's an epic western, you know. And so they track they track the killers. In a yeah, they go. track them from Arizona, and it ends up uh, at least on the script, it ends up in the mountains of Montana. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was uh, they were crossing all the way, and so I traveled all around those areas. I wanted to you know actually make it really authentic to make sure they're going to real right, places right. and all of that. But they meet characters along the way that come and go, and uh, uh, Catherine Mary Stewart plays a. Um, a, young, a, a young woman who has a tow, drives a tow truck, right? Okay, uh, and she comes out to their aid a few times, and then she actually gives them a few tips on surviving and gives them some guns. And, <laughs> and I wrote the I wrote the 
the role for a much older woman. I wanted to see that it was, uh, you know, it was Grant getting involved with uh, with an older woman. Um, <laughs> so it would be, it would have been like you know Kiefer Sutherland and Barbara Hershey ah. at the time. Okay, but um, you know Hollywood being what it is, uh, they ended up casting Catherine Mary Stewart, who was in I think the last Starfighter yeah, or something, something like of that. that. You know, and who's actually quite lovely and uh, she ended up being playing the role of Jesse and uh, uh, you know filling that role pretty well yeah no so she did a good was, job yeah, yeah she broke her arm during the production of it actually I went out to the set uh, when they were filming outside of uh, Flagstaff Arizona and by the way another great thing about Penelope, she asked me a lot. She said, where, where should this take place? Or do you have any ideas where this location <laughs> is and this and that? And I directed her to some of the places that I had found, right. um, specifically in, in Arizona, in and around the Verde Valley, which is up um, um, you know, just north of Phoenix, about, um, about 100 miles or so. It's in between Phoenix and Flagstaff. It's very close to Sedona. So there's some great old ghost towns and interesting places out there. And uh, so I went out there to the set. She welcomed me to come out. And so I was there for a few days while they were shooting on location. And the day, the first day I got there and finally got to the set, there was a scene um, where they were riding uh, horses through this beautiful, beautiful setting uh, right, right on the edge of Flagstaff. And... Uh, she fell off a horse, I think, and uh, it was just like I'd been there like five uh, minutes, and she fell off this horse. The horse stopped abruptly, and she went like ass over, yeah, yeah, saddle pommel, and uh, broke her arm. Um, uh, at least it was just an arm. Yeah, but uh, she was quite the trooper. She she toughed out. She got that thing put in a cast, and then they covered it up with a long sleeve. Um, Oh, so some of the shoots, she was just hiding it. Yeah, she was hiding it, and she got back on the horse and did some more riding and all sorts of stuff. So she was, she impressed me quite a bit. Crazy. Yeah, you know, movies. The show must go on, you know. So you got this. So the whole movie, it's you know, you're like your first movie. Yeah. Like holy cow, and then and and I and I wanted to be there every every day. Right. But I couldn't because I got the job on the doors. And I had that to early. St- yeah, I had to start. Okay, okay, that's perfect. So yeah. how do we? Because I think. Let me double check here. So you. So, so you're doing that. Um, hold on, sorry. I want to just make sure I get this in chronicle. I can't speak. Chronicled. Right. Yes, the chronological order here. It's the. <laughs> it's the. The dead guy speaking. <laughs> or it's just me making fun of my mother for so many years. <laughs> okay, let's see here. Come on. There we go. So it says here, because this is all true, IMDb. <laughs> if it's on IMDb, then it's it got to be, be true. true. Okay, this is good. Okay, so yes. You're working on dudes... So how and where did the Doors project come up during the filming and the production of Dudes? Well, again, Hollywood is a streaky business, so you know there it's it's about, it's all about hype. And in the, anytime you have something going and heading into production, that creates uh, a fair amount of momentum. So suddenly everybody's interested in you. They right. want to know what you're doing and what your next project is and all of that. So I had some real 
heat uh, based on that because again the script had kicked around the studios as well so right. there was um, there was some interest uh, there so the Doors project had been languishing for years because they had as I think I had explained before they had um, uh, uh, th- th- there were quarreling parties that were involved okay finally Bill Graham the rock promoter was able to put all the quarreling parties together in one room and get them all on the same page and get them to agree to make this particular movie. It was a huge bit of politics. Okay, that he so all this stuff was going on prior to even showing up. Prior. Okay. So it was finally set and was set up at Columbia Pictures and Columbia was where Ridley Scott had his deal and so that's how I, I think dudes got circulated okay. out there and one thing, you know, so they had read it and they were aware of it. Now, simultaneous with all of this is that my one of my roommates from film school Mike Petzold was dating um, a young executive at at Columbia, this um, development executive named Jude Schneider, and Jude was the executive who inherited the Doors project, <laughs> and so it was her job then to go out and find the appropriate writer for it. So she asked her boyfriend, my old roommate Mike. Do you who would know be, anybody? Yeah. Who would be good for this? <laughs> and Mike, who was aspiring to be a producer at that point, too, as well, was just saying, well, you know, he knew a lot of writers around, but also, you know, he, he said, ah, you know, Randy. Uh, I was Randy then. And uh, so I got the call, and I knew Jude anyway, just through Mike, yeah. uh, slightly, but not, you know, not real close. Um, so she got me out to come out and talk about it with her and then she said I want to I want to put you together then with the producer on it okay and the producer was a guy named Sasha Harari who was an Israeli computer magnet who made a lot of money in in uh, software um, way back when and he had bought his way onto the project he had never produced anything before but he had bought a strategic piece of the pie he bought the sync rights to the Doors music which means ah, that yeah, yeah. no one could make a movie with Doors using Doors music without paying right. the piper who right. was Sasha hold on for one second yeah. let me yeah, see let's close that door close the door and the doors Yeah, it's cold though, man. Yeah, good breeze. All right, yeah. so so very, which is yeah, you got to think like the producers who bought the rights to Harry Potter were like, oh, just, did that just open up? <laughs> yes, what? it did. It's just like the it was like a ghost. That's pretty funny. I don't want to lock it. No, you can't do that, but you know. It's funny. All right, we got a ghost. Yeah. So I'm sorry. It's uh, Jim Morrison coming. <laughs> um, so uh, Jude facilitated a meeting for me to meet the producer. Uh, was Sasha. it one producer? Just Sasha. Yeah, just okay. Sasha. He was he was apparently the lead producer at that point. And, well, there you go. Uh, uh, so I met with him. We had lunch, and. Did he speak English pretty well? No. He actually had a very <laughs> thick Israeli accent, yeah. and he tended to mumble. Um, 
uh, a bit. And so it's kind of hard to tell if you're getting a good response. Oh. You must have been like, oh, I don't know about this. Oh, I thought, I, I'm totally, I thought it was over after 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, I thought it was just going to be a very long lunch because I felt like I was shooting blanks. Yeah. I was not saying anything that made any sense to him at all. Well, let me, let me back up on that real quick. So you know you're going to this meeting. Mm-hmm. You know what the project is about. You mm-hmm. said, this is the doors. So how much preparation do you do before you go into the meeting in terms of, like, reading up about the doors? Are, do you have something preset in your mind about this is how I would tackle the, the story? Or Well, it, it's helpful, yeah, because when you're going through an interview process uh, with producers it's essentially it's an audition piece we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show mm-hmm. um, now granted they've they usually have read something that you have written prior to that uh, but they're also listening to agents and uh, and studio executives and and listening to their recommendations on who they should meet and all that but when it really comes down to it, it's about chemistry, and it's about it's about the, your vision, you know. Um, so, granted, at that time, unlike today, where there is a, you know, there's a dozen biographies out on Jim Morrison. Yeah. Uh, now, um, at that time, there were no biographies, except <laughs> for No One Here Gets Out Alive, which was written by Danny Sugarman and Jerry Hopkins, which I read. But I was not impressed with it um, for uh, a variety of reasons. It, but it struck me as being very sensationalized, and uh, it wasn't footnoted. That's always if, if a book isn't footnoted, that's nonfiction. Um, you know, I find it very difficult to believe. Right, right. Uh, you know, some of the sources they say that they get they they get their material from. Anyhow, I had read that. I was a Doors fan. I wasn't a Doors fanatic. I had a couple of their albums. I didn't have the, the complete catalog. Yeah, yeah. And but I, I had gone to UCLA film school, which Morrison and Raymond Zarek, the keyboardist, had had attended, and we had actually shared a couple of the same instructors. Um, they were they had attended, you know, in um, I think '64, '65. Okay. And I was there and started in 79 and 80, 80, and out in 82. And so what happened, um, though, is that I, I caught a couple of these professors at the very end of their tenure after many years there. And that one was Ed Brokaw and the other was Lou Stuman. And they both had had Morrison and, uh, and Ray Manzarek as students. And uh, he left the door wide open there. <laughs> and uh, See if he's bringing so, something down yeah. through it, though. So uh, that brought a little credibility for me because, I, you know, it's always about insider information and somebody, oh, he must be really in touch with, ah. you know, because you know, he's come up through the, so you did all the this... UCLA Film School mystique. Okay, so did you do all this prep work before? Like... Not, not really, because there wasn't a whole lot to do other than listen to their music, read the book. Um, you know, How many maybe, days did you have to prepare? Did you do like one day, like he's going to meet with him tomorrow? Yeah, so it, it was pretty okay. quick. It came up, I think, in, within a couple of days because they were ready to go. They had to get moving. You know, they were, they'd been, this project had been festering for years. And so now that they finally had the green light to do it, the people were very, very eager to get moving. So I went and met with Sasha on this, this restaurant up on, uh, on the Sunset Strip there in, in Hollywood, uh, West Hollywood. And 
sat down and we started chatting and I just felt right away this is not working it's not going anywhere and I'm, did you feel like you were doing most of the talking and he was just kind of looking yeah. and mumbling yeah like, <laughs> yeah basically let me know. see if I close this okay. Hold on. sure He's just cooking out there. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> on the chef, he's just yeah. Cooking. Well, he's cooking out there. We're freezing in here. He's like, yeah, no problem. No. Close it. <laughs> anyway, okay. so you're you're just going, oh great. So how yeah. long was the meeting? Like twenty well, minutes? Well, it was about to be. I thought it was going to be over real fast. <laughs> it was the quickest lunch ever because I thought I was boring them, and we just couldn't find seem to be finding any any common ground. And granted, again, too, I at this time had had uh, directed. You know, I've been working with Henry Rollins, Black Flag, and right. the Minutemen. And so I was kind of very steeped in the punk culture in L.A. at that time, which didn't seem to matter to him. So uh, then I said something that was, I remember him cocking his head. Hmm. And I felt that I, I made some sort of impression. And that was, I drew the comparison uh, between Jim Morrison and Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> And the movie Lawrence of Arabia, in which uh, I said that both of these guys were very charismatic, uh, very well-educated, well-read young men who were literally swept up by the events and the wave of history. And they surfed it as best they could, but what was happening is that there was a discrepancy that arose between their public persona and their private ones. And it got to the point of where that discrepancy pulled them so far apart that something had to snap, and it did, and it broke them. I would have got my and, attention. And yeah. that did. He cocked his head, and then what I thought was going to be a 20-minute conversation ended up being two hours. We were there for a couple of hours. Ah, that was a turning on. point. Yeah, it was the turning you, point. You got him that hook. Got him with that hook. And so who would have thunk? But uh, that's, the way it, that's the way it worked. And so he became very curious then about, you know, what I thought. And because he was, Sasha was very uh, intrigued with the notion that Jim was indeed a poet. He was, he was an intellectual. Yeah. And arguably he was. Um, so he wanted to see that aspect really exploited and dramatized uh, as much as possible. And so when I brought that up, I mean, that to him, you know, there was, there was a corollary between him and Lawrence of Arabia. T.E. Lawrence, who was, you know, was a, a, a writer and basically had the, the poet, or the soul of a poet himself. Um, but Lawrence was uh, homosexual and... Lawrence also started believing his own press at a certain right, point. At right. least that was the take that the movie had. And it became very, very difficult for him to measure up to the sort of the public or the heroic image that, that had been perpetuated then by the media of the day. So it's very true with, with Morrison. Morrison wasn't a homosexual. He's probably bisexual. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, he had some secrets and some issues that, you know, um, caused him to uh, to snap, you know, to break as well. You know, so, and also then the other thing that I, I think scored some points was that I said, 
and this was one of the reasons why I really wanted to do the project, uh, was I had felt there had never been a rock and roll epic. Yeah, I can see you know, that. Film. Yeah. You know, up until that point, we'd seen the Buddy Holly story and the Richie Valens story right. Right. and things like that. Coal Miner's Daughter, which was really great, but it was different types of, of music and different... We hadn't seen a really serious treatment of rock and roll and rock and roll, epic rock and roll. Yeah, know? and at a crucial yeah. time. Like you said, right. it's different. Like the Buddy Holly, Richie Valens right. story is, is just different. But. And so I felt that the Doors really had that potential. Because the because of the subject matter of what they uh, they sang about and what they had, their performances and the way they orchestrated things and the way their albums were produced and all of that and yeah. you know and Morrison's vision and Manzarek's vision and all of that they collectively they they had scope it was it wasn't bubblegum rock yeah it wasn't Paul Revere and the Raiders or you know right. it really was about <laughs> it was about the big questions you know yeah and so that's where I thought dramatically cinematically it had great potential and that's why I wanted to do it did you find yourself once you cry, you broke through that like 20 minute mark and you re- realized that now you were gelling having this conversation that were other things kind of coming in your mind like it's just you start just riding the wave yourself yeah in you this start conversation. you start talking out of your ass pretty yeah. fast <laughs> <laughs> you know it's uh, yeah yeah you do you get You're like, you know yeah and it could be like this dolphin no no yeah, not yeah. a dolphin it'd be a giraffe yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> a bit a bit yeah yeah it, it, it gets like that you know it's 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 pretty funny and you got to be careful too of like not not promising more than you can deliver you know <laughs> but you can't help but get excited and and they and they feel that you know they it, Producers and ex- executives and stuff—they they want to be swept up with the with your enthusiasm. They want to see your vision as well, right? And they want to feel it. So it's uh, it's exciting for them when you get excited and you sell them on it, you know. And then they're going to get on board because they usually have to turn around and then either have to sell you to their boss or to the studio or to, to some sort of money entity that they and make them feel confident and good enough that they are making the right decision in yeah. hiring you, and that you and only you have have the vision to pull this off, you know. Right. So when I went off to this meeting, I, I remember talking to my, my agent at the time, Rick Jaffa, who I mentioned in our last session, you know, wrote, uh, has written with his wife, uh, The Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Yes. You know, he left yes. Morris to go become a writer. But Rick was still my agent at that time. And uh, he called me before I had this lunch, or I called him at, to tell him that I had this meeting that Jude had set up with Sasha. And. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And he said, listen, you know, he said, I don't mean to dash your hopes, you know, rain on your parade, but, you know, they're talking to some really heavy hitters. It's a very, very slim chance you're going to get that gig. Oh, okay. And I said, I don't okay. care. I'm going to, I got to go for it. I want to try. Right. Um, to try for it. And uh, so he was very pleasantly surprised when, when, uh, uh, I got the gig, but however, I didn't know I really had it. Now, see, Sasha was, was a very good poker player, and mm-hmm. so, so we that twenty-minute lunch expanded into a two-hour lunch, and we left. And then I heard from Jude, I believe, later on that he said, "All right, he wants you to come and meet the doors now, the surviving doors." And I said, "Great, you know, if nothing else, <laughs> hey, nothing it's else. already yeah, it's cool. already been worth it." Yeah. <laughs> 
So uh, we met, and I can't remember if it was at Columbia Studios or if it was at some other location there, um, but we had a preliminary meeting where I met them. I can't remember if Jude was present in that meeting or not, but what was interesting was that Manzarek was there, and Manzarek was impressed with with the stuff that I had done uh, music video-wise and, and also with my record label. And here's, the, here's where it got... Uh, no, no, my record label hadn't, hadn't been established yet, but here, here's where it got incestuous, though, which was that Manzarek um, was producing X at the time. So oh. X, X was, of course, right. you know, the punk rock band of, of LA. In, in L.A. Yeah. So Manzarek was producing them. So he was very keyed into what their their you know vibe and aesthetic was. Um, then he was further impressed by the fact that I had gone through I was through UCLA and we had had some of the same same instructors. So we compared notes on yeah. that a lot. And then um, Ray was also very interested in a band called the Fibonacci's, who were. Um, uh, he was interested in producing them, and they were the band that ultimately would be my debut band on my record label. <laughs> you know, so I kind of, kind of really. And then, then Densmore, the drummer, John Densmore, to the Doors, found out that I had written Dudes, and he knew about Dudes already. Uh, that it was, I don't know, in the in the works somewhere. And John was acting a lot at that point, and he immediately said. Do you think you can get a me a part in the movie? <laughs> so, <laughs> you must have so, like this. Like, oh, I just what I, is going so on here? I, I said, well, sure. And then I had also the other thing that brought uh, the Manzarek like was that I had been working with Black Flag and Henry Rollins, and I had always um, argued that you know the Doors were much more punk rock than they were flower power, psychedelic oh, yeah. generation kind of stuff. And that Henry was, you know, sort of the spiritual inheritor of, of the Morrison legacy, you know, by doing all his spoken word stuff. And, and, and I, I felt Henry had potentially had some acting chops. And there was even some discussion about Henry even possibly being the guy to play Jim just very, very briefly. But uh, Henry and I were palling around a lot at that time, and so I actually uh, brought Henry over and to meet uh, Manzarek and uh, Paul Rothschild and Bruce Botnick, who engineered all the Doors albums, and Rothschild who produced them all. It was some recording session was going on that they, and so they, he thought that was really cool. I, I scored a lot of points on that day because Henry was really impressed to meet Manzarek and Rothschild. And uh, uh, Manzarek was really impressed to meet Henry, and it further just kind of, I think, cemented my street cred in terms that I, w- I was the right guy for, to do this project. Right, right. You know? so, so that's how in session. And then I got, uh, I got Dinsmore an audition for uh, Dudes, and he, Penelope cast him. Um, <laughs> so he's in Dudes. Um, he plays. Uh, 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 a sheriff in a in a that's right a Montana town that's and right. uh, leaving <laughs> blows him away at uh, you know at the very end there and uh, uh, but it was it was <laughs> it was really funny man <laughs> it was quite a time that was a high high watermark in my my career in 19, so you had a, 1986 my so, God so you had your dudes is in production you basically 
At what point did you know it was official that you're on well, doors? Well, I didn't. So we had that. Yeah, we, we had, had all these meetings. meetings. We were having all these meetings. And I kept wondering, well, where, you know, and we had a lot of talk, a lot of discussion. You're like, nobody where's my was, paycheck? <laughs> well, nobody was saying anything. Yeah. So then we met again at a meeting. Uh, we had a meeting at 20th Century Fox. And the reason why we were there um, was because we were in the, in the office of a screenwriter named Tom Rickman. Tom Rickman is a wonderful, wonderful guy and a wonderful screenwriter. And he had written Coal Miner's Daughter. Michael Apt had directed. Um, they had originally gone to Tom to see if he wanted to write the Doors movie, of which he declined. He just um, he just didn't want to get into that uh, that rat's nest, I guess, or, or whatever it was, hornet's nest. But he agreed to be aboard as a to mentor anyone who did step in to do it. So in other words, Tom was there for backup in case, you know, whoever stepped into it failed. So he wanted to meet me then. And so we all convened at his office in 20th Century Fox. Ah. And so, so there was Tom, there was the Surviving Doors, myself, Sasha. And I remember they had ordered out lunch and everybody was, uh, they brought in these sandwiches. And so we were all sitting around eating sandwiches. And there was a lot of banter going back and forth and discussion and they kept asking me certain things about the movie or, or how, you know, what, how I saw certain things and what was important and what wasn't. And I kept trying to, like, figure out... Am I on this job? What? what? And finally, I, I just finally I just looked at Sasha. And I said, look, do I have the job? And I remember him just kind of grinning at me. He said, yeah, you have the job. That, that was your <laughs> confirmation. That was my confirmation. I, was like, I just exactly any paper, nothing. nothing. Like, my agent, like, my man, nothing. Oh, my God. And that's, so, that's when, at that moment, then it was just like, I freaking couldn't believe it, man. Because then it was like, I, I had run the gauntlet. I had beat the odds. Um, I was, you know, having lunch with legends and I was on a studio lot and it was the dream it was the dream you know it was just an amazing feeling when you got that moment where he gave you the smile and the nod Uh internally were you just how quickly were you able to focus back onto the task at hand which is like well well, here's the vision of the movie because inside you must be like Oh, holy shit, this oh, is actually happening. No, like, this is actually happening. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, I'm just doing somersaults inside. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, but try to be cool. <laughs> be cool. Oh, yeah, cool, man. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm cool. I'm, I'm into it. <laughs> uh, hey. Please keep going. This is it. Well, it goes outside, but that door keeps flying it, open. No more lock. Yeah. There's no more inside that right? No, no. no. So. There's, yeah, this is it. Um, so yeah, it was just like, uh, but I remember getting out of there and just like, oh my God, who do I call first? I mean, I was like, so. Well, who did and, you call? I think I called my agent. I called Rick and and Carol Yumpkis, and I said I got the job. And they just like, are you kidding? Me? Are you sure? Are you sure? And they said they told me they only got the job. And sure enough, it was you know consummated shortly after that. Um, I called Jude to thank her for really yeah, you yeah. know um, uh, going to bat for me because she she really also. Uh, it wasn't just all me. She had influence with the studio, of course, and because she was still the executive in charge of the, of the project, so uh, she went to bat for me as well. And uh, geez, I think I called uh, 
I don't know, I called my parents and uh, I, you know, it's all blur, a blur at this point, but it was just, I just couldn't This is old, been. this is still a payphone style. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no yeah, cell no, phones. No, no, I, I waited until I got home. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, this was, this was 86, but this was the drag, though, is that I got the gig and then Dudes was in production, was going into production. So you're like, I want to be there I and I can't. I want to be there on the set, but I got it. I had to start going to work. Oh, well, the success. doors, like, right away. Yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, they were shooting dudes in L.A., in the L.A. locations, before they went off to Arizona. Okay. So I was able to to uh, go down the set in L.A. a couple of times, and um, I was uh, dating this girl who worked for SST Records at the time. Nice. And was she punk rock? Yeah, yeah, she was a little skate punk. Nice. And uh, <laughs> uh, uh, she was tough, man. Kara Nix. <laughs> And uh, she was a photographer as well. And a really, actually, very good writer. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. Um, uh, and anyway, I took her uh, to the set um, of dudes. And we were, I remember being down there and then, then flea started, started trying to pick up on her. I was going to ask yeah, you, yeah. like <laughs> brought her down there. I'm assuming that you, she, you lost her to one of the oh, rock stars. Oh, one of the punk star yeah, flea was, you know, the, pep, the, <laughs> the chili peppers were just starting to break. Yeah. 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 You know, they, they were, were still certain, kind of they, underground. They, they were, they were still very underground. They were, you know, they were the opening band for more established bands in LA at the yeah. time. Um, but uh, you know, Flea was a known commodity because of his uh, his playing with uh, a fear. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, for even though it was a short stint, and then and he was just a well known guy in that whole scene. So um, yeah, but <laughs> Flea was after Kara that that that, that day. Uh, I love it. That was pretty funny. But yeah, so then um, then Sasha told me, he said basically. Take a couple of weeks to research, and then go and write the script. And I thought, okay. Um, <laughs> so where do you start? Well, I started by interviewing, Teachers? you know, the door, the the, the doors, doors okay. um, themselves. Uh, you know, you go right straight to the horse's mouth in this particular case, and that was, uh, you know, Ray, Robbie, and John. Um, and I interviewed them collectively and then I interviewed them individually as well because you know it's a little bit of corroborative yeah, you yeah. know kind of, of witnesses and and that that I found it was sometimes they would be more frank if they were if the others weren't around especially Densmore would really open up yeah. if the other two weren't around so it became very apparent to me oh and then Rothschild was also um a gem of an interview, um, and he was really my my. Good. We're um, yeah, we're doing really really well. I guess you can take that empty. Yeah, I'm not going to suck any more out of that. But, you know. Um, I guess another one. I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just nice been talking to him. Nice. I know. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. So Ray. Uh, let's see. Um, Densmore. Oh, Rothschild. Um. It was, yeah, my first or second session with him, it was like, wow. Um, I felt like I was still being auditioned to a certain degree. Yeah. 
because a lot of these guys now, now even though I was on board and sanctioned, and yeah. I had the blessing, now it was still I sort of had to prove myself. And in a, in a sense, I mean, these were the guys who were the guardians of the, the faith, you know, right. um, keepers of the faith. And so, therefore, I had to further prove myself in a sense. So that's where I started doing a lot more research and really asking the right questions, really thinking ahead of time before I would speak. It wasn't just trying to, you know, talk out of my, what was Jim really like? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, well, can you tell me some good drug stories? Exactly. You know, stuff like that. And, but, but really trying to get to the meat of the matter. But it became very apparent to me uh, after my first round of interviews that the public persona of Jim Morrison was one thing the private one was an entirely different thing. Right. So that there was, in other words, there was a whole lot of stuff that had never been discussed, never been talked about, never been delved into whatsoever. And that it was not, this was not a particular case of where I was going to be able to take a couple of weeks to research and then go and write the movie. Because the deeper, the more and more I got into it, the deeper and deeper I felt it was and it was going to take some real work and some heavy lifting. And Rothschild, Rothschild, you know, told me at one point, he said, look, you're going to, you know, the, the key to it is, is finding, you know, what, what made Jim so angry? What was the core, what was the, the, the source of his angst? And then you ask him, where do I go to find that? <laughs> well, he offered it up. Uh, okay. To me, um, so, um, and he said that uh, he said Jim came to him a couple of times with a problem, and asked Paul's advice about what to do about it, and um, the uh, it would it, it was related to a particular function, <laughs> and um, and Paul said. You know, look into this because he said, I think this might provide some, you know, answers to Jim's angst. So let's you back know. up real quick okay. for me. It's like we have Ray, the keyboardist. Yes. We have Paul is. Ray, Ray Manzarek is the keyboardist. Right. Robbie Krieger is the guitarist. Right. And John Dinsmore is the drummer. Right. And then Paul, Paul Rothschild produced Thank all you. of the Doors albums except L.A. Woman. Okay. Okay. So that's where. He, he, he was done, as really in, a, in one sense sort of was Jim, um, um, after the soft parade. He couldn't, he didn't, he, he heard some of the demo tapes for, uh, or not even, they weren't even demo tapes. Uh, he, he attended a couple of band rehearsals where they had the new material mm -hmm. that they were working on, and he heard Riders on the Storm, which he said it sounded like cocktail music to him. It was boring. He didn't. Um, I see. He didn't like it. Thank you. So that's what was interesting um, hmm. uh, there. Um, so, but Rothschild was the elder statesman in a sense of the band. Um, Paul was a few years older than uh, even Manzarek, and Manzarek was definitely the elder statesman of the band. You know, Robbie and and John were like 21, 22. Yeah, yeah. 
And Ray was 27, 28 years old when the doors really kicked in. Ray was born in 1939. <laughs> Ray had been in the Army. Ray was in graduate school for film school when he was at UCLA. He wasn't an undergrad. I know when the film came out, mm-hmm. um, I heard read statements. He was just upset because like, he felt like the movie sort of... Um, portrayed him as like kind of a whiner you know he's like <laughs> yeah well ray had a lot of issues about yeah. the movie and not to jump ahead but yeah, i just remember yeah that i mean as a you know outsider the, yeah there, there there were a lot of I, I ray did not get along with oliver from what i understand i can't say that okay you know but i i they did not see eye to eye um and it was interesting too because ray was very tight with danny sugarman um and Danny Sugarman ended up being very tight with Oliver. Um, so you would think there would have been some sort of synchronicity there, but there wasn't, apparently. There was a lot of friction between Oliver and, and Ray. And Ray did not like, you know, how the movie handled a lot of the stuff. And, yeah. so, and so went on record again and again, really just saying, no, bad movie, bad bad portrait, et cetera, et cetera. Oliver, again, Oliver likes to get sensational with stuff mm-hmm. and uh, but he's and he's a man not lacking in opinions yeah and so and nor nor the guts to express them so he's you know he was going to make his own movie one way or another so um, let's we'll know. back up real quick so you you go on this uh, this journey your own journey now <laughs> now you've entered the portal of Jim Morrison's world it, it was exactly it was that yeah and I don't know if you um, you, sh- you may check out just last week um, Jimmy Fallon did this Jim Morrison imp- uh, impersonation. Oh, did he? On his really? show. Oh, funny. Uh-huh. But he does this thing where he, he takes famous like musicians that he does imitations uh-huh. of, like uh, Paul. Um, I'm sorry, who is it? Uh, Neil Young. Yeah. But he's <laughs> he had like Jim Morrison in the Doors, like his makeup make believe band. But they were he would just sing these songs, um, but the, the lyrics are just not nonsense. But it was. He was basically reading like um, um, the Reading Rainbow, you know, the you know, Good Night Moon. So it's like all these children's songs, but done. And it is uncanny how much he sounds like, like Jimbo. Jim Moore. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. so it's online, and it's you just easily find it on like a quick YouTube search, and yeah. it's just to see him just going like. Reading Rainbow, you know, because <laughs> Indian cupboard, you know, it's like the way he sings it, and like the whole band yeah. is like for his show, but yeah. just, just as a little tongue-in-cheek thing, sure. it's pretty funny. Sure. But anyway, so you go down this journey, yeah, and what you thought was a couple of weeks. How big of a fan was Sasha of the music, or was he just more of a business pragmatic person? Well, going, I'm going to buy into this, and then that's an interesting question because you know, Sasha would tell me on more than one occasion how he got into this whole thing and which was that he had been um, he'd been in New York we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show Sasha was married at the time to uh, one of the Efron sisters Amy Efron who's a very prolific novelist now but she's the younger sister of Delia and and the other (laughs) Efrons there's a lot of them Um, but he had been living in New York at the time and he said that or prior to all this he said that he had been out partying all night long or something (laughs) yeah it was very very, very and he was 
coming back from some all-night thing and was driving across a particular bridge and the sun was coming up uh, in New York and I think he said the end came up right on, on the time. radio. Yeah. Right on time. Yeah, right on cue. And he said that was just like a salient moment for him. He had never really heard it, I guess. Um, you know, Sasha had been, I think he was in the Israeli army. It was in the Seven Days War in 67 <laughs> or whatever. So, I mean, he was just, this was not a... He wasn't, in other words, he wasn't in L.A. or San Francisco drinking the flower power wine, you know. He was in an entirely different place, much like Oliver Stone was, you know, he was in, Oliver was in, in Southeast Asia, he was in Vietnam, and when the doors were really happening stateside. So, anyway, he just said that this was just a huge moment for him, and he just, he got, from that point on, he became obsessed about the band, and he had made all this money in software, and he just went out and bought, literally just bought his way onto uh, into uh, this the strategic piece of um, the producing puzzle of, of the producing puzzle. Exactly. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It really. I mean, it was very interesting. And, it was, and I mean, it was effective because boy, he was he instantly made himself a player. Yeah. Now he had bought it couple of years before, you know, but um, he'd laid the money down and they did it. Was, it was a smart thing. So then, so, then, so now you've, you're exploring, you're, you're going, wow, it almost sounds crazy, but you could have like written a book, a biography, because yeah. all the, all the yeah. legwork that you've done to do the, the research. You yeah, could've... I accumulated, I, I, th- I think I have about um, 50 hours of interviews, oh, you know, on, on tape. And, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's everyone, um, all the doors, you know, Rothschild, um, Oh, uh, Jack Holzman ran Electra Records. Um, uh, God, I mean, I mean, there were characters. You know, Babe Hill. I've, Babe Hill was Jim's trusted drinking buddy in the latter part of his career. Uh, nobody knew where Babe Hill was when I got on board. No, and a lot of people didn't want to know. I <laughs> wanted to know because I wanted to interview him. Yeah, yeah. But everyone was was afraid of Babe because Babe was kind of this biker guy and he was in pretty tight with some I guess some real heavy friends um, Robbie had did not want to have anything to do with him he's and I mean Rothschilds just said Jesus you know the last time I saw Babe he had a he had a hunting rifle and was shooting it you know, off of, you know, my backyard, you know, up in the Hollywood Hills or something. It was just like crazy, all these crazy stories about Babe, but nobody knew how to get a hold of him. And, you know, Ray and all those guys, they didn't, they didn't know. So how did you do it? Well, I, um, <laughs> I, I wish I could take total credit for it, but um, I couldn't. Um, Tom Rickman had a very resourceful secretary at the time named Francesca. And Francesca did a little bit of sleuthing, which was, we had heard that Babe was in the Grips Union (laughs) and worked in the the film biz, and he was a grip. So she called the Grip Union headquarters. Whatever that number is. And Yeah, and then they said, well, you got to talk to Moose. (laughs) So Moose was like, uh, this guy named Moose was the head of the Grips at, uh, uh, at MGM. So she called up Moose, and he said, oh, yeah, well, babe, you know, you can find babe at um, this bar. I forget the name of it now. 
gee, it's only been 26 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was literally across the street from MGM, the old MGM lot in Culver City. And he said he's there every day about 4 o'clock. So, you know, just buying some Jack Daniels, and, you know. And like, okay, so... Francesca relays this information to me. She said, I think I found them, or at least I know where, where you can find them. So you kind of go solo on these things. I mean, yeah. it's, not, it's not like you have a team that says, like, you have your own little team that no. says, look, I'll find this, set up this interview for you. It's you going, hello. Yep, that's exactly <laughs> the way it went. Remember, there's no internet. There's no cell phones. <laughs> you know, it's an entirely different landscape. <laughs> what an adventure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um... She gave me the, the name of the bar and the address, and I went down there on a particular day about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, set up the scene here. You in this bar, did you fit in, or were you oh, totally... Shit, no, no. Okay. This, this was a real... This was, this, was a, <laughs> this was a drinking man's bar. So what were you, you know. wearing? <laughs> well, you like, know, uh, I'm certainly not going to dress up for the occasion. Right, right. Um, you know, jeans and a T-shirt. And um, I was probably wearing my black Doc, Martin, Doc Martens at the time. Um, it was a little horseshoe counter of a bar, really small. Um, gosh, I can't remember the name of it. I, I probably got it somewhere in my notes. Three or four professionals at the bar drinking, you know, already yeah. at 4 o'clock on a weekday afternoon. And I think I got there first. I think okay, I, I okay. was there staking it out and went in and ordered a, um, ordered a beer. And, you know, honestly, boy, I haven't really thought about this in a long time. It might have been that Moose conveyed a message to Babe. Like, hey, this guy's looking yeah, for you? Yeah, And... Um, <laughs> And I think the message came back something like "Go tell that guy to go fuck himself" or something like that. There, the usual, or, yeah, or or it was like you know, meet me at this bar at that at such and such time. You know, <laughs> those are two different um, responses. Yeah, I know, I know. It, honestly, it, it's been that long, and I can't remember. But uh, let, let me just say that you know, for the record, I entered the establishment with a certain amount of trepidation. <laughs> okay, and. Uh, um, but uh, sure enough, Babe came in, and uh, I took a seat next to him. I said, "Hey, Babe, I'm Randall, and you know I'm writing this yeah. the movie." Now, on hard, the doors. how hard was it to say, "Hey, Babe"? <laughs> hey, Babe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hadn't really thought of it like that. <laughs> but I guess you well, did. it would have been worse if I'd said, "Hey, Babe, I'm Randy." Uh, that, if, if we were in England, that would have been an, you know, an entirely different <laughs> subtext. Oh. Um, and, you know, he just, he didn't really want to talk at first. I remember him being yeah. some, taken somewhat aback, so, which leads me to believe now, actually, that he was, I caught him a little off guard. He wasn't sure that I was going to be there or something. Um, so he, uh, but I remember him saying, um, Kind of, you know, being standoffish at first, but I didn't back away. I knew this was like, I have to get this. Yeah, like, this is my job. Yeah. yeah. And he finally said, well, buy me some whiskey and we'll talk. And so I, we ended up drinking. He drank a lot of whiskey and having a 
you know, we talked for probably an hour and a half, two hours there at that bar initially. And then, again, like I was talking about before, where there's this kind of like these hurdles, or the, mm-hmm. these, you know, this gauntlet you have to go through, I cleared it with him. So, therefore, then, I was able to go the next level, which was, okay, we'll meet again, and yeah. then we'll get into it. Oh, okay, I see where okay. you're you know, So it was like the outer circle, right. but then we're, we'll get into the more meat of the matter. Now, let me ask, so when you so, got hired in the job, again, as a, a life of a writer, you know, you're paid in, as of like a freelancer, you're paid in these chunks. There's not like a regular right. paycheck. It's right. just literally yeah. like, here's a bit of money, and here's another you're, bit of you're, money. You're paid in increments, and usually the, the way it worked at that time, you get paid, you know, half up front, and you'll get paid the half, the second half upon delivery. Right. Of your first draft, and then it there's usually yeah, the there's there's rules, a usually right. some leftover for another pass and possibly a polish, right? You know, but uh, basically you get a very large sum up front, and then you get another large sum after you deliver first draft. What could happen in in between that? You know, it could be a right. you know long time, and it was in my case a long time. Yeah, I was going to think like because you're on this project, you're like okay. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. He's asking you to buy him some whiskey. You're like, okay, I have money. What I'm saying is like, yeah. they're paying me to do this. I'll buy this whiskey for you. So yeah. you now make the second, you enter that circle. And, and, yeah. and the stuff that he was telling you, like, like, for you personally, was it just more like, were you finding moments of like, Oh wow! Oh wow! Like just your head spinning in a sense that you were like, like story points or just just sheer pure human interest. It's more of the latter. I okay. mean, I, I don't recall really just going, holy yeah, freaking yeah. goobers! You know this this <laughs> this is the most amazing stuff I've ever heard. It wasn't anything quite like that. A lot of the a lot of the stories had already been kicked about, you know, okay. and that people were aware of them at least as a rumor or something. But I don't, I don't remember, you know, having really earth-shattering stuff coming out from Babe. And I actually, I think I might have been a little disappointed in Babe, actually. And then because <laughs> you really, learned more, something deeper more. that nobody yeah. else had. Yeah. Okay. But basically, Babe, Babe was was just a good guy. Babe was unlike Jim. And a lot of Jim's old film school crew, Babe was kind of the anti-intellectual. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, Babe kind of kept it real. Ah, I gotcha. For him, you know, in that Babe was probably more loyal than almost any and all of those friends. But Babe wasn't Jim's intellectual uh, on his level. He, he would listen and he would tolerate it and kind of stuff like that. But basically... He would watch Jim's back, and he would call bullshit on yeah. Jim. And you know, and Jim knew that Babe was real. He wasn't just sort of somebody who was fawning all over him. And that was pretty much the case too with with the other guys that we, that they were pretty close in that in that little knit uh, close knit group, which was included uh, Paul Ferrara, who I never interviewed, and Frank Lisiandro, who I did interview. Um, those were Jim's old friends from film school, mm-hmm. um, and those guys were really tight knit, uh, you know, for for a, for a period of time. Um, and 
so they did a lot of partying together, a lot of drinking together, and a lot of you know uh, of that stuff. But um, but yeah, you know. It, but what was happening though is that I would interview you know, all these different people, and they not not none of them really got along with one another, and they'd all <laughs> kind of like uh, you know headed to different directions, right. you know. Um, and so what happened is that I just had this. It was amassing all this information though, and none of it jived. Hmm. None of it was sort of coalescing yeah, yeah. into anything, and it was like a classic case of that, you know, the uh, the blind men touching the elephant. Yeah, thinking that, oh, I really have I, the knowledge of what Jim Morrison was all about, but you know, he's right. got his hand on the tusk, but somebody else is holding on to the tail, right? And all, and and they, neither, neither one of them really knew, right? You know? Right. So. Fascinating. It was, yeah, and so it was. It was a scary then because I had to pull it all together. Like I you, had, like you realize now it's real. Like all the honeymoon's over now. It's just work, right? Now, how many years or how long did it take you to get the first draft to them? Well, I spent all of 1986 working on the one draft. year. Yeah, I spent one year from research starting, writing. I got. I, I think I got the job in like February, mm-hmm. March, something like that, and. Yeah, and so then I started researching and then writing, and uh, holy crap, you know, I just got, and I, and what was funny too, I was, I was 27 years old, same age Jimbo was when he died. <laughs> drove a Mustang. I had a Mustang. Jim drove a Mustang. I was living in West Hollywood, which is uh, <laughs> literally around the corner from, UCLA. from where Jim used to crash at uh, Pamela's. Um, uh, apartment on hmm. uh, on Norton Avenue. I was on lived on Sweetser, and uh, j- just up from Santa Monica Boulevard. And so I was literally around the corner from uh, his his universe, which was basically the corner of uh, the the intersection of Santa Monica and La Cienega. Yeah, because the doors offices were right there. Um, the Alta Cienega Hotel Motel was there. Electra was just down the street. There were Barney's Beanery and a few other locales that are now long gone. But that was really kind of the center of his universe. And so it was, it was a little interesting, you know, <laughs> living, living there at that time and, you know, and writing about it. This was at, when I was first on, on board on it. And then, and, um, I, I just, it was it was odd. Yeah, it was really kind of a, a sort of a, a strange thing. But I, I couldn't work at home a lot of times because there was noise in the apartment. I had a roommate at the time, and uh, yeah, and it just it was a lot of it was distracting. So I I moved around a lot, um, and I actually came down to the uh, came home to uh, Carlsbad. Uh, and wrote a lot of it down there, staying with my parents. Um, just to get away? Well, just to get away, and I got really sick also. I got a... Oh. Um, I got a... Um, it sounds worse than it was, but it, it, I had monohepatitis, huh. uh, which just waylaid me. Um, it's actually a more a benign form of hepatitis than you would you know, yeah, yeah. think. But it sounds worse than it, than it really actually was, but it was... It, I mean, I was wasted for a long time, and I, cu- I literally couldn't get out of bed. Uh. And here it was. I had the most, felt like the, the job of a lifetime, and most important, and yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know. So I was laying there in bed, 
and too sick to even sit up straight. But I remember just envisioning in my head, it was laying there with this fever or these, oh, these aches or whatever. Um, I would just go over it again and again in my head, like one scene after the next, how I would see the movie. Yeah. You know, and just formed it from based on all the interviews and stuff and just just envisioned it one thing after another after another after another for as far as I could yeah so you're still working you know still working but literally not not writing yeah which is fine it's I mean they they talk about that in um, like I said the other podcast I listened to with uh, Jeff Goldsmith like Creative Screenwriting Magazine but now he has his own podcast called the Q&A and a lot of the screenwriters he's talked to they talk about this this technique that they use which is they need their nap time. The Coen yeah. brothers talk about that, where they just have a nap, which is that that weird state of in between when you're about to fall asleep and in, in awake, and all of a sudden somehow it just cleanses your your thoughts, and like what you're trying to work on comes clear in that weird moment of right before sleep or coming out of yeah. sleep. So you were lucky enough to be induced with a, this, <laughs> a sickness yeah. that you were like constantly like that. Every waking hour, but <laughs> well, there's yeah. I mean, but yeah, it, it is interesting. There was there's a lot of truth to that, um, and to that that sort of state between waking and wake and sleep, and, and yeah. consciousness, um, yeah, and sleep. Um, but it was uh, nevertheless, um, you know, I, I was I I moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I I went up to. Um, Idlewild, up in the mountains above, um, you know, um, Palm Springs there. Uh, and some friends of mine had a, no, it wasn't friends. Yes, it was friends of friends. And I rented a little uh, A-frame cabin for like uh, three weeks or a month and, and rode up there. Like a real rider. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lost way like, in a cabin. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, um, then I was down at my parents' place and then... Um, then I got some office space. This is really bizarre, too. There were just all these really weird things that happened. But I, was, I had this office space that I rented for a while in a big barn-like building in uh, West Hollywood. It was, an old, um, it was an old historical building. I think it had been a silent film studio or something like that. But it had been all divided up, subdivided inside. And so there were all these different little uh, cubicles and, and uh, things within it. And somebody... A friend of a friend had office space there, and they, they were going to be gone, and so I could go in there and work. So I was there working late one night, and I had my all my stuff out. I had doors, tapes. I had a little, this is again the day of, of cassettes. Right. I had a little portable cassette player, and I had all my doors, tapes, and I had a briefcase full of stuff. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I had a whole stack of photographs of, that I'd taken on the set of dudes that were in this briefcase and everything. And I was really tired at one point, so I went out and I got a bite to eat over around the corner, like at Hugo's or someplace. And I and I came back, came upstairs into this into this place, and it was pretty big and dark, you know, and others and. And I had just this little light around my little cubby where I was working. And I came in and I sat down and I noticed that some of my stuff didn't look like the way I had left it. 
You know, and it was weird. I said, God, I don't remember. These you just papers. said something was off. Yeah, well, yeah. something was off. There were some papers on the floor or something was, something was in disarray. Something wasn't, wasn't quite right. Then I heard something in the back. <laughs> but wait a minute, what the hell is this? So I go back. Now, I had been told that there there's this comedian, Rich... Um, Hall? Hall? Rich Hall. Rich Hall yeah. himself. Yeah, had also had space there, and he would occasionally come in late at night and work around. So I thought it might have been him. So I said, "Oh, let's go and I'll go and say hello, yeah. maybe." So I go in the back, and here's this guy stooped over, and going through a bunch of stuff. And I come in and I say, "Hey," <laughs> he, and he's and he looks up and he says, "Oh, hello," and he has this kind of affected English accent of some sort. It's very very odd. And he had this retro, like, 50s suit on and a fedora hat. Okay. Literally a fedora hat. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought, well, this isn't definitely isn't Rich Hall. Yeah. And so I said, who are you? And um, I said, do you work for, it was a production company that usually was there. Do you work for such and such? And and he's. He said some. He said some weird answer that was like neither yes nor no, and I thought this isn't right. Yeah, yeah. So we chatted a little bit more, and he was like really just like eyeing me, and like it was very, really, really kind of weird. And he stood up, you know, and I was like, "This, this is something. This is really not right." Your I insides said, yeah, were like telling yeah, your yeah. So I said, "Look, um, your spidey senses." Yeah, my spidey <laughs> sense was up, you know, and so I said, "Look." Um, Gee, dude, you know, I don't mean to be out of line here, but I missing I'm missing some stuff that was on my desk here. And he said, "Oh, really? What was that?" And I said, "Some tapes, some Doors tapes and stuff." Oh, I like the Doors. He said, <laughs> and it was like really kind of creepy. I like the Doors. And I was like, oh boy, this is okay. My spidey sense is really right, up yeah, at yeah. this point now, and I was thinking, geez. What do I do? And I was thinking, I can, I can take him. I can take him. But I thought also, this guy is just weird enough that he's got like a switchblade or some kind of mm-hmm. weird thing in there. So um, I kind of made my exit, segued back, backed away from him. And I went over to my cubicle and I called the cops. And, um, and I said, I got a, you know, there's a, there's a burglary. And they said, okay, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they said, they put me on hold. <laughs> and then I, then they finally came back and they said, "So when did it happen?" I said, "It's happening now. He's in the building." She said, "He's in the building. Why didn't you tell us?" <laughs> so I mean, they, and then this guy was—he heard me and yeah. he bolted. He bolted out of the place and went running with my uh, pieces of my briefcase and yeah, whatever. Yeah. And um, and boy, the cops were there fast. I got down on the street, and then I had to put my hands up because they thought I was the guy. Right, right, right. And I said, "No, I'm the guy who called. This is the you know." And so they had, they had a helicopter overhead. This is uh, not LAPD, but uh, this is West Hollywood, so it was sheriff's department, and they they were there very very quickly. And then people from the production company called later on, and I told them what happened, and because they there had been other things that had been taken, yeah. and so what happened is, you know, I lost um, this guy, absconded with a bunch of my Doors cassettes. Not not fortunately, 
nothing that could not be replaced except that he took my grandfather's briefcase, uh. which was something that I was, you know, very proudly thought was cool. It's yeah, really yeah. neat old satchel looking kind of a briefcase. And, um, uh, there might have been some notes or something, but he also all the photographs I'd taken out on the dude uh. set. Which, happy ending, though, I found the negatives to many years later, like oh. af- after I moved up here, actually. Interesting. And I found them, you know, that's one of the advantages of moving, is that you find a lot of stuff you think is lost. This? <laughs> and, uh, so I got those reprinted, and actually they're on my, my website now. Oh. But, so anyway, but that was just, um, and they never found the guy, and actually many, it's like several months, like six months later, I got a phone call. And they had found the briefcase, and they had found stuff, but it was just deteriorated. He had stashed it under the steps or some bushes there on the on the compound, and it had been rained on and deteriorated and all that stuff. But they had found it. There was still some stuff in it that you know I was able to salvage a little bit of, but still the good stuff was gone. And uh, I- anyhow, uh, that was just kind of t- sort of typical of, of what was going on I, I you know I remember coming home one day after work you know interviewing people and I was just exhausted and my head was swimming and I you know I didn't know if I was making any progress at all and I and I literally like laid down to take that nap and my head had hit the pillow and the phone rang and I picked it up and I said hello and he said Randy Johnson <laughs> yes and blah 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 here. I won't say who it was because he's actually uh, a very successful director now, but he was an actor at the time, uh-huh. an aspiring actor. And he said, I hear you're writing the, D- the Doors movie. <laughs> I said, uh, or, and he, said, he announced his name like we were old buddies, and I said, hi. And uh, good. We're good. I think we're um, good. And he... Um, he said, well, I understand you're writing the Doors movie. And I said, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and he said, well, listen, you know, we got to get together because, you know, um, I'm a huge Doors fan and I'm, I'm the guy to play Jim. <laughs> and I said, well, listen, man, you know, um, thanks, but there's not even a script yet. It's a little premature. I, mean, I haven't even written this, finished the script yet. And um, frankly, you know, when it comes down to casting, I'm not going to, I'm going to be lucky to even, if they even ask me you know, my opinion. And, uh, so anyway, somehow I, you know, I got off the line. He called me up a couple, one other time and literally it was the same kind of circumstances, middle of the afternoon. I was like trying to take a nap (laughs) and he was, he said, I'm tripping, I'm tripping, man, I'm tripping. And I said, well, good for you. And he said, listen, he said, you got to know this. And he said, the, I had a dream last night, and guess who came to me in my dream? Jim Morrison. Gee, I I wonder. He said, Jim Morrison. He came to me in the dream, and he said, I'm the guy to play him in the movie. So we have got to get together, man. We've got to get together. And I'm just like, "Dude, dude, you know... Don't call me when you're high. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now he's a successful director. Yeah, it's fine. He's fine. He's on. <laughs> I won't say who it was, but but this was just kind of the nutty, bizarre 
circumstances that were, you know, just in the midst of all this, and I was, um, where I was trying really hard just to get through my, find my way through it all, and, yeah. and I couldn't. And so, I, you know, again, back to your whole thing, could I have written a book? Yeah. Um, I think in one sense, after... I was off the project that I had all this, all this, all these interviews, and it was very. I thought, ah, nobody's nobody's going to want to read a book about it. And then subsequently, you know, I mean, for like every six months, there was a new Jim Morrison biography that was coming out, and I just sort of kicked myself for not doing it. It was, you know, the reason I I brought that up is because I remember hearing this interview with another another screenwriter, and they were talking about this other famous. I I don't remember her name. But they were asking her, like, hey, you know, if you would ever were approached with this particular project again, would you, you know, write it the, the same way or write this project? She goes, she was, her response, I remember, was something like, like, hell no. She goes, I would write, I would write the book, I would write the play, I would write the movie. Basically, like, her <laughs> mindset was like, I would figure out a way to it milk it in yeah. and, and all different facets, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. like her, her life lesson is what she learned after being a writer for so many years. Right. It's like, so that's when I thought about it, too. It's like, wait a minute, holy cow. You know, I just had to ask you just because I remember that little, little snippet from yeah. some... Well, some of this stuff, I'm actually, I, th- I think, going to attempt an, uh, a large article about it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. You know, at some point, yeah. because I think there is enough stuff that in here that's kind of actually worth looking at in terms of a screenwriter's um, uh, approach to a, a daunting project, and that my kind of like my whole trip, my whole journey on this was uh, it was it was something, and yeah, it's something I, I I earned some stripes on this one, I think. Yeah, it's cool. Well, I think we'll we'll wrap it up here because okay. I think um, we can go into the next next. I love it because we can go to the next one. We talk about the final release of um, Dudes. We can yeah. talk about this Oliver Stone the, coming into this the, is the, the project. End. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is fantastic. Yeah. Believe me, I I'm gonna be honest with you. I I listen to a lot of podcasts and I said with a lot of screenwriters and they, they do like a a lot of the interviews they do with uh, screenwriters even though I love what Jeff Goldsmith does mm-hmm. they sort of just kind of he only has like an hour and a half to really kind of gloss over somebody's career mm-hmm. so the advantage that we have here is I get to ask these questions that I know I'm just like a fan like anybody else going mm-hmm. like God, what, should, what would that be like if you had that moment you're like oh my god I'm on the job you know it's like <laughs> yeah, or like man. I can't believe this is so surreal that I, mm-hmm. that I'm working with the doors yeah. the doors yeah. and then like you but you got to step back and you're like now it's this work I got to just figure out and just talking about the little things about writing about like you know you realize you're 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 doing a service because you're just trying to get the story mm-hmm. but there comes a time sometimes where I guess you're you have to ask yourself like what kind of story do I want to see? Or like, what is it yeah. that, you know what I mean? That was that little ounce of personal um, reward out of it. Um, especially when you're writing all these, you know, sort of pseudo autobiographies. Well, in not in autobiographies, the, I'm sorry. Yeah. In biopics or whatever. But right. in, in this particular case, um, the more I got into it and the more information I began to uncover, uh, and collect the more and more it fueled my I don't know my passion for it let's say 
Um, it became my crusade. <laughs> I, I got you. I <laughs> to a degree, that. to um, to in a sense blow the whistle on the bullshit that had circulated about him for so many years, mm-hmm. and and in the very least try to tell attempt to tell some truth about him. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that was my undoing on the project. And so we'll leave it at that. There was oh. much conflict to come. Okay. You know, because it was not smooth sailing. Okay. Well, let you know where it ended. I remember when we finally saw the film, I think I was in senior high school. Yeah. It was a big, big deal for my buddies and I to go see this movie. So, you know, because you know, <laughs> it was a big, like, event. So anyway, well, well, when I was in the in the South Pacific earlier in this year in in March, um, there was a I met a gentleman who was um, uh, a politician serving in the Parliament of uh, the Island Kingdom chain of Vanuatu, and he found out that I wrote the Doors, and he just he. He said, "I saw it in college, <laughs> and of all places, you know. This is this was in Australia, but he grew up and has returned to Vanuatu, out there in the deep South Pacific. And he said, "Oh man, he said I'm so glad to meet you. I said you really got it right. And so, it it never ceases to amaze me how powerful you know film and pop culture is oh. really. You know, it's so far reaching. You know, there's not a point in the globe yeah. anymore where it just doesn't go. It is the greatest." Where, so export that yeah. the United States has. Yeah. yeah. And it will change it will change. I mean it, it will change worlds because yeah. you know doesn't matter how I mean the culture of these young people and all the all these little other countries. Mm-hmm. I mean not to say westernize it, but there is this romance idea of I think what these western movies sort Pretend. of represent. Mm-hmm. That hits a psyche amongst you know the rest of the world, yeah. and I think that's yeah. sort of sometimes becomes the root of you know revolution. I mean, yeah, hell, sure. we were bombed. I mean, we were attacked nine eleven because of the stupidest things of like of they were they were citing you know Britney Spears like how could you have your women dressed like this right yeah you know it's yeah, like sure we were we were so like what that was the reason yeah but yeah. there you mm. go. There, anyway, um, yeah. Well, thanks for asking the questions, and thanks for giving me the opportunity actually to get into this in, in a certain amount of depth. You know, yeah, no, it I, just doesn't. You know, it, again, if this were any other interview, it would be gloss over. Very, yeah, oh, so you got your, yeah, yeah, and then it's like, oh, okay, you're right, but yeah, sound bites. Now this is good. I mean, I'm cool. enjoying it because cool. it's like, oh, uncovering and and all this kind of stuff. Oh, but yeah. Now it gives me those thoughts like, man, we should write a story about your adventure writing this stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Well, that yeah, <laughs> I think that's in the works here at some point. I don't. Yeah. So you were like, we're scratching the surface here. All right. Yeah. Well, here we are. I'm well, sure thanks. I got some good stuff. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I want to thank Scott so much for doing such a great job on this episode. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmMuscle.com forward slash 718. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com, subscribe and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.